3: Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is going to be fun because I love when you can tie history and policy together into a current event and a current problem. We're going to do that right now. Uh, Neetu Arnold is joining us, another of our great Young Voices contributors. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time today.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited about talking about this subject.
3: I am too. She's a senior research associate of the National Association of Scholars. That needs an acronym. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and she's the author of priced out what college costs in America. But we're going to talk a little policy here. Uh, you're in the Wall Street Journal. Great. Get, congratulations. Still haven't heard back from them yet. <laughs> I'm available uh, The title alone gets my attention on this. A Cold War Program Gets Hijacked. We're going to talk about the National Resource Centers. Let's start big picture before we zoom in on the National Resource Centers, though. This is not a new phenomenon where we have Cold War programs, Cold War policies, frankly, Cold War thinking that has zombified and still lurks us forward today, along with some government funding and the bureaucracy that comes with it, is it?
2: No, not at all. And I think this is a perfect example Of a program that was conceived under an emergency that has outlived its purpose and again with the national resource centers they were founded uh, as a cold war emergency Uh, this was in the height uh, of the cold war Uh, sputnik was launched by russia or the soviet union actually and uh, at the time americans did not have uh, sufficient language knowledge or science or mathematics at the time and so there was a lot of interest from the government to educate Americans in foreign languages, in math, in science. And so that's how this program came to be. And so it was really about develop, uh, specifically for the National Resource Centers, it was about developing language knowledge and expertise on different areas of the world. So, so far, what I've said here doesn't sound very problematic, it doesn't sound controversial, but over the years, Uh, there's been a mission drift for these centers. And what I documented in the Wall Street Journal piece was that a lot of these centers are now focusing on issues that are either unrelated to national security or uh, the topics are not that important and, in fact, sometimes malicious.
3: Yeah, and that too, Arnold, joining us. Uh, You know, it hits me, staying big picture for just a second before we get into specifics of the NRC, Everything you just said, you could swap out the Soviet Union and say China because we've been discussing over and over again. It's like, well, China is so far ahead of us on the intellectual and academic front. They're putting out and you can pick whichever number you believe so many more you know, scientists and so many more of the higher ed people than we are. So on the f- surface, this is not a problem that has gone away, but that's not what these things are actually doing. And it sounds good. Hey, we need to have more knowledge of the rest of the world. Absolutely. We need to have a strong academic core to pull Things like government researchers things like government diplomats the the concept is good where did the concept lose track of what's going on in the real world especially as the world changed from the cold war to the war on terror era to now where we have real world things like the chinese where they're an adversary
2: right so i really think the mission started to change after the cold war ended and this was a problem that many of the scholars working at these centers uh realized that once the cold war ended the mission of the centers also ended and there was concern that many of these centers would close and so in the 90s the early 2000s uh there was discussions of rebranding the centers to focus more on quote international education again they thought that maybe people could learn more about the world and there's not an issue with necessarily learning about different cultures or different uh, different customs, but its connection to national security is a, a little bit fuzzy. And this was the way to continue the importance of the program. And then of course, after 9-11, there's increased interest, especially in Middle East national resource centers. And uh, so again, more government funding, was pushed to those uh, to those centers specifically, but again, there' are so many people before me who have documented the bias of these centers and uh, after after the 2000s, funding got cut to many of these national resource centers. but again, we've never really gotten rid of the funding, and my argument is that well it's time it's time to cut federal funding for these centers
3: yeah, me too, Arnold. before we get into the problems. If it was a perfect thing that ran perfectly, which we know there's no such thing, especially when a government bureaucracy gets involved, what should they look like if they were functioning properly? Because, it, it, you know, it's kind of like counterfeit money. You know, the banks don't teach people the counterfeit money. They show them the real money so they know what the counterfeit looks like. What should the real thing that works properly look like so that we know what these problems look like when we delve into them here in a minute?
2: I mean, I think they should just teach languages and they should focus on uh, issues like uh, security relevant issues to these areas with devoid from ideological activism. And that's what I really document that that's what they're doing now that many of these centers are promoting ideological activism, primarily uh, progressive or left wing ideology. So there isn't even a balance. Um, so that that's what I would say it, it needs to it, it needs to not be focused on ideological activism.
3: Yeah, but this is the reason it's going to have the ideology in it, let's be honest here, this is going to be a a role, the jobs that staff these things, this is going to be very academically heavy. The academic institutions are already leaning to the left for the most part. This is going to be bureaucracy heavy. We know the people in the bureaucracy lean to the left quite a bit. It seems like an inherently built-in problem because, look, we we talk about the system and the bureaucracy. Well, the bureaucracy is people. And when you're drawing from that pool of people, just demographically, I'm not even knocking it, just math-wise, that's probably what you're going to get for the most part, right?
2: Well, I don't think so, actually. I think uh, the Center, back back during the Cold War, during that time, I think there was a lot more objectivity involved in many of the people in the Center. Even if they had one particular view, they were able to teach these subjects without inculcating their own ideology. So I think it is possible, but... We've clearly devolved from that. So in the context of today, I would say it's becoming a lot harder.
3: Why is that? So if if it changed, was there a single now, obviously the Cold War ended. So that was a major change. But you know, that was a, well, we're pushing 40 years on that now. What changed then that this has become more ideologically, you know, to the left? Why did that change? Did the people change? Was it the circumstances changing? Was it a change in the funding system? What did it?
2: Right. So I think some of it has to do with the people themselves and uh, the normalization of including activism and left wing ideologies in the coursework. And I think um, part of the reason is because of the new left movement, which was pretty which. pretty much rose uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. And it many of those people were in college at the time, but now they're adults and they're in these teaching positions. So I would say that's one place for why this activism became involved with, or er, melded with education. Um, I think there's also just more of a focus on um, oppressor versus oppressed. Um, you know, those ideologies that have uh, inculcated. And I think some of it also has to do with uh, the funding. So at least for Middle East studies, what I can say is that they started to get more funding from, or this is for certain centers. So this is not for all national resource centers, but for a center at Georgetown, for example, they were looking to uh, foreign funders like those in Saudi Arabia, Oman, many of the other Gulf states and uh, they have specific interests so I would say some of that would affect uh, at least what the centers would teach though I would say nowadays the countries don't necessarily need to tell the centers how to teach these subjects or what views to promote because the faculty will do it on their own.
3: Yeah, me too. Arnold joining us. Let's look at it this way, too. We're talking about ideologies here. Going back to what the core point of this was supposed to be. I think there's a day. Look, I have no problem that we hash out different ideologies in an academic setting. I have no problem that we hash out ideologies in a political and cultural setting. We need to. That's how our system is right. up. That's how growth we should be debating this stuff out. I do think there's a problem, though, because what happens here is, let's be honest, we're Americans, we get a little myopic and tunnel vision. We tend to see everything through our American filter. And some of these things, some of these ideologies, some of these culture-type issues, they don't apply when you start talking overseas, and they don't apply when you talk to other countries because other countries' struggles aren't the same as ours. Their cultural struggles aren't the same as ours. This seems to be when you start trying to just apply the cultural issues of the moment which is what happens when the ideology shifts to these which is supposed to be something to boister how we see the rest of the world that seems like two incongruent things to me at this point in time the way it's being used now
2: absolutely and I think there's a big misunderstanding of what other people from different parts of the world view different issues and how i don't even want to say how we view it because i don't think it's everybody in america i think there are many people in this country who would disagree with the way the academic establishment has gone about these issues and i thought a good example of what i saw here this disconnect uh, was when stanford university's latin american center which again is supported through federal funds it receives federal funds um decided to host a webinar on how we could use picture books to promote LGBT advocacy for Latinx, Latinx, Latinx. And I read that and I thought that was a bit out of touch because even most Hispanics do not agree with the terminology of Latinx. And again, I'm not really sure what that topic has to do with American national security. So I I would say that's an example where the academic establishment is out of touch with not only everyday Americans, but a lot of people from other countries.
3: Yeah, me too, Arnold, joining us. There's two things that you point out in your piece um, that have changed dramatically that you use to bolster your argument here. I'm going to take them in turn. One you you talk explicitly about, the other one's kind of hinted at, but I want to flesh it out a little bit. The first big change from 1958 is a pretty obvious one because it's how we're talking right now. We have this thing called the Internet now. Yes. Um, 1950s, you know, everything's still in books. Encyclopedias is a big thing. Very different environment, very different cultural environment, very different communication environment. The world is way more integrated. Uh, People's knowledge of the world is way more integrated. That's something that hasn't been updated in the way the NRC sees their primary mission, is it?
2: I agree with that. And that's why I say that we're not limited to just the physical classroom or these national resource centers anymore. Uh, I think the internet, uh, love it or hate it, uh, it's it's been a way to connect people and people who wanna learn about different cultures could easily go on YouTube and watch some YouTubers. And I I get that the criticism might be, well, there could be disinformation. How do you know what's true and what's not? And I think we have to have a little bit more faith in people that they can evaluate what's true and what isn't. You go on YouTube, if something is false, people in the comments will easily let you know. And I I think it, it can be a good platform to see other cultures as they are, like in their actual environment, free from the political correctness of the universities. Uh, it, it can allow people to make their own choices, make their, make their own uh op- or come to their own opinions about the way the world works.
3: Yeah. Me too, Arnold joining us. The other one and you kind of hinted and talked about a little bit, but I want to really bring it out here is. We, the American people, have changed. We just had the new census data come out. Not only is um, what would previously be considered minority groups growing, the nation is diversifying very, very rapidly. And part of that diversification is, and you mentioned it in your piece, we have more at least bilingual, if not multilanguage speakers than we've ever had before. You mentioned a couple of other places, uh, the Education Department's Language Resource Center. The Pentagon's uh, Defense Language Institute is considered an elite institution for decades. They're very good at what they do. It seems to me that there should be some recruiting of them. This could also fall into a, you know, where we talk about the visa situation, where we get some of these folks into our country that are that can do these sorts of things. There seems to be multiple ways to address this, especially with a diversifying country, lack of a better term. We can do some of this in-house now, can't we?
2: Yes. And again, I want to bring up some numbers here just to provide more context. So we do have more bilingual speakers in this country than ever before. In 2018, 67 million people were speaking a second language at home. Uh, Some of these languages were Hindi, Chinese, Arabic, which are all languages deemed critical by the Department of State. Uh, so I want to bring this up again. 2018, 67 million bilingual speakers. Uh, this is compared to 2000, where we had 47 million bilingual speakers. So 20 million increase. Uh, I think we could draw upon these individuals. You know, I think of people like my parents who are uh, native or they they have native fluency in Hindi. And if you paid them enough to work in these positions, especially during dire times, uh, there would be many people in my community in other uh, bilingual speaking communities who I think would easily take that job. So it's just about paying them enough and uh, the the incentive structures should be there, but we're not in this dire situation of the 1950s where we don't have the internet, we don't have that many bilingual speakers across the spectrum of the various languages that exist. Uh, We have a lot of options nowadays, so... I I think the National Resource Centers, they really rely on the narrative that if we got rid of these centers, if we got rid of the funding for them, that we would be thrown into this knowledge crisis, which I I don't think that would be the case.
3: right. So as usual, when you're dealing with a government program or a government institution that this is, you're dealing with funding and you're dealing with power structures because people don't want to give up their little hamlet of power. Right. I don't want to put anybody out of a job. That's not what I'm saying. It seems like there's some redundancies in these centers. Like we said, there's some other things we could step up. There's other things that overlap and can take the burden on them. You know, it's easy to just say, let's eliminate something because, you know, (laughs) you don't have to do all the red tape. and You don't have to write a law. Right. But if you're going to eliminate it, this does seem like a program that can be absorbed into other parts of government, either by expanding other parts of government, expanding where it already overlaps. This doesn't seem like this would be a giant gaping hole if we got rid of it. This seems like something that just needs to evolve to the natural next level to me.
2: I think it's realistic to assume that we could cut funding or even eliminate the funding for National Resource Centers, and that's because we've already done it before. In 2010 or twenty ten or 2011, uh, there were major cuts to uh, Title VI funds, which is some of the funds for the National Resource Centers. Uh, I believe it was a 40% cut, which is major for federal programs. And m- my view is that if we could do it once, we could definitely do it again. And as you say, there are redundancies here. So again, either we cut the funding or some some of those funds could just go to other departments. But there is no reason to have these redundant institutions, especially when they are not teaching things that are relevant to national security.
3: Yeah, need too, Arnold, joining us. Uh, let's go back to big picture where we started after going through you know, policy stuff and and bureaucracies. You got to wade through a little mess to get through and people's out. Let's go back big picture for a second, because I think it's a fair criticism that the worldwide literacy of the average American is probably not where it should be. As far as, you know, our place in the world, how the rest of the globe does things, how other cultures do things. I think that's a fair criticism. I am an American. I love my country, but I've also lived overseas. So I've got to see it from that side looking back in. I think that's a fair problem. What would be a good way to address this, not just bureaucracy wise, because that's always going to get took over and you get mission creep like you talk culturally, the way we deal with our social media, the way we deal with intaking information we already talked about. We have the Internet. We can look up anything at any time. instead of just, you know, doing cat pictures and yelling at D.C., what's some things that the average person can do? on their own to raise their worldwide literacy, for lack of a better way to put it, which is actually the core value of what this was doing in the 50s was, hey, we as a country need to pay better attention to our place in the world. What can we do individually to just go ahead and do that on our own now?
2: I mean, I would say, you know, maybe this is just my view on this. From the people I've spoken with, I actually think they know quite a bit about the world. And there's a lot Less understanding of the way things work here in America, whether that be the way our government works. Uh, you know, for example, I work on student loans, uh, the the issue of student loans, and there are many people who don't realize that uh, federally backed student loans that's fu- that's paid by the taxpayers. Uh, that that connection isn't clear, and there's a lot of lack of understanding even about our own history in this country. Um, whereas I see a lot of people and. They seem to know something about another place or the food of another culture because we have a lot of that here in America. So, I, I do think some of this just starts from, uh, you know, in K through twelve education having uh, st- uh, better reading education. Part of learning about other regions in the world requires knowing how to read and because you can read a lot of these things in books on the Internet, Uh, watching YouTube videos. I think YouTube is a great tool for this, where people talk about their experiences traveling to other parts of the world and even people from other parts of the world will comment about their experiences. So I, I do think it's about having a stronger K through 12 education system and uh, just more reading.
3: Yeah. And I think this is uh, this is one of those things where we bash the Internet and we talk about all the kids are always online and stuff. I, look, my two youngest are teenagers right now. I'm telling you, they're way smarter than I was and they know more. And they and yes, there's a lot of silly on TikTok, but there's also stuff on there that piques their interest and they go look it up and dig into it further cultural stuff so i think this is partially a cultural change that um and our government is always slow to adapt to cultural change but yeah the generation coming up next you know my kids generation they got no problem if you tell them something they go look it up and fact check you on the spot so i think some of that might be coming um just to put a cap on this you wrote about the national resources we're going to put the piece up in the links wall street journal read the whole thing for yourself she also has quite a few links in there that you need to click through a lot of data on there read it make up your own mind like we already said Which would be the fix with this? Would this be a administrative fix with the bureaucracy? Would there need to be a piece of legislation? Um, If we were going to pare down and or eliminate this and or fold it into other programs and somehow do it that way, what's the remedy here? Is it administrative? Is it legislative? What do you think?
2: I think it's more legislative. Uh, That's what's been done previously. So I would think that's where the change would need to be. Uh, Obviously, in the shorter term, if uh, we can't just eliminate federal funding for national resource centers, then the Department of Education should strip funding from centers, so individual centers that are not meeting the national security needs. They're either distracted, they are presenting, they're presenting, they're misusing funds for topics that are not even related to national security. That is something the Department of Education could do.
3: Me too, Arnold. Uh- I love these topics because there's so many of these programs like this that they kind of outrun their their original program and they just keep going and going. It's the old uh, Reagan line about the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Here we got one of them could be useful, needs to be looked at and dealt with. We appreciate it when you bring things like this to our attention. Uh, We'll definitely have you back. Enjoy talking to you until we get you back on Hertel again. though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you're doing, what you're writing and how they can follow you.
2: Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, to follow my work, you can either visit the National Association of Scholars website, which is www.nis.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold.
3: Yep. And we'll link to all that. Make sure you follow her on the Twitter and keep up with all her writing and works. Me too, Arnold. I really enjoyed this. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Johnson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. That's why we do what we do here on Hertel. We turn down the noise of the news cycle, try to talk about things that matter, try to ignore the things that don't or get to the bottom of them and try to find if there's anything in there worth talking about. And we discern our times by having good information, talking to knowledgeable guests. So glad you're with us. Appreciate it. Uh, there's an old saying that when it comes to the workplace, you should never talk about religion or politics, especially not together. Of course, That's kind of a fairy tale. You can't separate those two. Why? Well, religion is a study of what people believe, how they see themselves, how they see life itself. Politics is how people govern themselves, how they see their worldview and how they see their interactions with other people. People are important because they are the most precious things on Earth. It's the only things we can't replace. Once you're dead, you're gone. Can't bring that back. And our perceptions of how we treat other people and how we treat ourselves and how we view people is important. So, no, religion and politics is not inseparable, no matter how much you may want it to be, how much you probably don't want to talk about it in certain work situations. I get that. I've enforced that rule a time or two when I was in charge of things. But we talk religion and politics on this show and they go together because people are complicated and those things feed into how they see the world, how they see politics, and how they see each other. Let's go to an opinion piece in the Washington Post. This is by Paul Waldman. Now, I don't agree with absolutely everything here, but he drives to something that I want to discuss. So I'm going to read his piece as a basis, and we're going to talk about a few things real quick. Again, these are Paul Waldman's words um, from the Washington Post. Constitution may forbid any religious test for public office, but where politics is actually practiced Candidates are constantly testifying about their faith, hoping we'll all see them as principles and morals, no matter our own beliefs. Yet, despite what many voters believe, there's very little reason to think there's something worthwhile about piety and politicians. A recent kerfuffle over comments by Jenna Ellis, an erstwhile Trump lawyer, current senior advisor to Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, who himself adheres to odious Christian nationalist worldviews, made this question newly relevant. Ellis responded to a recent Post article on Democrat nominee Josh Shapiro's Jewish faith by tweeting that, quote, Josh Shapiro is a best, a secular Jew in the same way Joe Biden is a secular Catholic, end quote. It was an utterly vulgar for a Gentile like Ellis to pass judgment on whether any Jew is sufficiently Jewish. It's also a particularly weird way to attack Shapiro, who is devoutly observant. Again, this is Paul Waldman writing in the Washington Post. Unfortunately, this wasn't too surprising given the recent eruptions of anti-Semitic remarks from high-profile conservatives, including Donald Trump, who has a long history of tossing around anti-Semitic tropes while expressing surprise that more Jews don't abandon their values to support him. Most notable, though, is the implication of being more secular in Ellis's eyes would make Shapiro more objectionable as governor. Is there any evidence at all that pious and observant politicians make better governors or senators? Are they wiser, more compassionate, more competent? possessed of more integrity of those who don't regularly attend services or look to scripture for policy guidance. There is, I haven't been able to find it, in our long history of rogues and villains in public office, the highly religious are more than adequately represented. As in the rest of society, there's no pattern in which the corrupt are more likely to be secular and the moral more likely to be religious, either personally or in their official capacity. Again, this is Paul Waldman's writing. I'm going to talk at the end of it, but let's go through this first. And there are plenty of less religious office holders carrying the quantities that the faithful is supposed to bring. Take somebody like Bernie Sanders, who, unlike Shapiro, happens to actually be a secular Jew. Despite never claiming his religion should dictate policies. Sanders embodies what advocates of pious politicians say they want. You disagree with him, but he's clear and consistent with his principles and his positions and decisions. They're unwavering and, among other things, his supporters believe they immunize him from corruption. We can argue that's some other problem. Campaign contributions won't necessarily change his positions, and as so often happens when people claim they're looking for principles, what they're really after is nothing more than politicians who support their team. Nothing demonstrates this more vividly than evangelicals rapturous embrace of Trump, whose professions of faith are comically phony that not even his supporters can believe them. When Ted Cruz ran against Trump for the GOP 2016 presidential nomination, he said any president who doesn't begin every day on his knees isn't fit to be commander in chief. That's a Ted Cruz quote. But the GOP's religious base turned away from Cruz and all the other more religious candidates give their support to Trump. Seemingly the living representation of character flaws Christians are supposed to horror. But why? Because what really mattered to them was Trump hates who they hate. And they don't care what his Bible verses, his favorite book, that's in quotes, but can't name a single Bible verse. Remember two Corinthians? That was fun. That happened to Liberty. He hated and infuriates liberals and he fights the culture war. And that's what mattered to a lot of them. And to a degree, This is Paul Waldman writing now, not me. He said, and to agree, they're right not to care, and the rest of us shouldn't either. Among the benefits of not worrying about how often a candidate sits in the pews, we may finally get some representation for the tens of millions of Americans who aren't religious. An important recent development in the faith of Americans is the rise of the quote-unquote nuns, the rapid increase in those who tell pollsters they don't believe in God or don't identify with a particular religion. They make up a quarter of Americans, and the numbers are even higher among young people. And yes, there's even such a thing as a conservative atheist and conservative liberals out there. Yet there are almost no nuns serving in Congress. Christina Cinnamon in Arizona may be the only one. A candidate's faith may sometimes be a shortcut to know which positions they'll take, but it won't tell us whether they'll be honest and trustworthy. There are plenty of things that go into being a good public service, But being religious isn't one of them. That's Paul Waldman writing in the Washington Post. Don't agree with all that, but he's driving at something. And I want to use that as a basing off point. There's a lot of ways you can talk about religion and politics, and almost all of them are fraught because somebody's feelings are going to get hurt somewhere in there, even inside of faith groups and denominations or however they're divided up. You can't get people to agree on anything. Trust me, I'm a Baptist. We argue everything from casserole to colors of the carpet to what kind of music. We can't agree on anything about anything. And that's just inside of our own little corner of the religious world. That goes for a lot of other people, too, Catholics, Muslims. I'm sure our Jewish friends argue about certain things during synagogue meetings. I don't know if they have business meetings or not, but in our churches, we certainly argue over everything. We can't agree on very much, even inside the confines and constructs of our faith. So when you start talking about politics and religion in a big pluralistic society like the United States of America with 330 million people getting more diverse by the minute and polling shows us getting less religious by the minute, you're going to upset a lot of people no matter how you address this. So let's kind of keep it on a practical level and just deal with it this way. Here's one of my rule of thumbs when it comes to a candidate and their religiosity, for lack of a better term to put it, what they say. As in all things, judge actions, not words, because anybody can learn the buzzwords. They can speak the languages. They can say the right things. They can even quote whole verses of Scripture. It doesn't really tell you anything about their personal life. So I already can hear it now. There'll be folks from our Christian friends. who will be like, it's not very Christian to judge. Okay. It is Christian to fruit inspect. That's in the Bible. Might want to check that one out but I do judge actions and I do inspect fruit. If you claim to be of a certain kind of fruit tree, I want to see what you produce. So go with actions, not words. Here's a good telltale with a lot of people, people that got to be really loud and be really upfront and tell you how great they are with their faith and how religious they are and how much they pursue their faith and how Christ-like they are or how much they attend to whatever other faith group they may be like. That's usually a red flag to me. Now, you can call me cynical, but here's the thing about it. Your religious belief should have a lifestyle component to it. That's why I don't lead off with it. I'm a very bad example of my faith group. I try my best with it, but I'm really, really not good at it. I fail a lot, so I don't lead off with that. If you want to talk religion, we can. I've studied theology better part of 20 years, both academically and just because I enjoy it, but I don't lead off with that because I'm very aware of my own sins and my own failings. We can talk about it if you want to in a conversation. See, that's how you handle that. If you're going to lead off on your Facebook pages and your Twitter feeds or your candidate websites or your fundraising emails, yes, do that too, then I have a right to judge you based on that. And if it doesn't match up with the faith group you're aspiring to, I can judge that too. But what Paul Waldman got at here, and the part I do agree with him on is, We've got too many people that don't want to do that. They just hear the words and never actually judge the actions to see if they match those words. Now, some of that's because we're all hypocrites to some degree. We all have failings. That's why we have faith in the first place, because we're all trying to work through this life thing. We're all trying to understand life. We're all trying to figure out how to be better people. And whether that's for your God or for your own good, depending on your faith group, it's a noble thing to work on. But if you're just using it to put people into groups and categories, if you're just using it to identify people of your tribe, you've stopped doing that. You're not really trying to improve yourself anymore. Now you've just got a tribe. Now you've just got a group. Might as well be the Elks Lodge with a cross on the front of it. Are you really being all that religious if that's the case? Culture and politics and religion and politics and your morals and politics, and morals and religion are some of the most complicated concepts we have. Philosophers have debated them for years. Theologians have fought over them. We fought wars between different religious groups over these sorts of things. So when it comes to religion and politics, we ought to be at least able to talk about it honestly and say, let's judge actions, not words. Your buzzwords don't impress me. We have internet and Google now. Anybody can find those. What does your actions tell me? And Fair enough, just sitting in a pew doesn't make you religious or going to synagogue or going to Friday prayers or whatever other religious group you are. Fair enough. Everybody can do that. Going to Walmart doesn't make you a Walton. I get that. What does your life say? What does the things you put your time and energy in? We always open this program with thanking you for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. Let me see where you spend your time. Is that with your faith group doing charity work or doing things in the community or praying or whatever it is? Or do you spend that time attacking other people? Politics is rough. Religion is hard to understand. We can judge people's actions. And if they don't match their words, we should believe them. More tell right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, this is fun. We love having her on here. She has become our go-to when it comes to health policy because that's what she does. She works in that field. She explains it so well that even I can understand it. At least back on the program, Young Voices Contributor. How are you, my friend? Great to see you again.
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
3: I'm good. You got in the Wall Street Journal. Way to go. I'm still waiting on my call from them. Open DMs. I'm available. <laughs> um. There's really two parts to this story that you're covering. One's going to get the headlines and the trending topic, and the other one is actually a more universal problem, but they both converge here. Um, The Senate has a bill. This is a bipartisan bill. Rand Paul and Cory Booker, usually not two guys you would normally associate with each other. They're pretty much as different as different can be on a lot of levels. They came up with this FDA Modernization Act. Now, as we all know, names of bills means absolutely nothing. This was actually kind of pretty close, though. It is a modernization of the FDA, and this is pointing to something from the 30s that does need modernized. Before we get into it, in a perfect world, if we take it at face value, what is this bill supposed to do?
1: This This bill is simply there to end the mandate that pharmaceutical drugs be tested on animals before human trials. So if it all goes well, it will simply say pharmaceutical companies are welcome to use animal testing or another way of, you know, demonstrating that a drug is safe before they start administrating it to people um, to to proceed with the trials.
3: Now, this is a mandated law. It goes back to 1938. They're just removing the mandate if they don't tinker with this too much, trying to get it passed.
1: Correct. Yeah. This is not a ban on animal testing. I'm sure lots of people would like there to be a ban. Uh, Animal lovers don't like the fact that we can't test on animals, but this is, again, bipartisan bills are not that exciting because it just means everyone kind of agrees. Here's just saying, hey, this is an outdated mandate. Like you said, 1938, um, the uh, Congress ordered that um, animal testing be part of those trials and or like, precede human trials. And now that we've developed much better technology to test drugs, we no longer need to rely on human testing uh, on, on, excuse me, on animal testing to uh, be able to uh, test the safety of a drug before we administer it to people. So we're just saying you you do it, you don't do it. It doesn't matter to us as long as the drug's safe.
3: Yeah, we'll touch on the animal testing part because that's the one that probably most, you know, that's the one that's going to trend on Facebook. It's like, oh, let's talk animal testing because people react to that strongly. Big picture wise, and you do a good job of laying this out in the piece. Can we just stop? Because we skip over numbers and don't. 1938. It's 2022. And we're just now looking at this law. How many laws are on the books like this from the 1930? We dealt uh, with another guest yesterday. We were talking about a law back from the 1880s that was put into effect to try to. We covered it with, out in Colorado where they were trying to shut down a Rocky Horror Picture Show with a law from the 1880s about you know public nudity. This is way more widespread than people realize. Is like we have all these zombie laws on the books that just go and go and go because nobody ever updates them that's actually a more universal problem and something that that is in the purview of Congress and state legislatures to do. They don't do it very often.
1: Right. And I will put that out out there first. I have nothing against old laws. I think laws, you know, laws should actually last a long time because it's hard to to pass a law. It's hard to uh, implement it. And uh, it affects lots of people, right? So we want good laws to be passed and then to be there so that we can rely on them. The problem is, when a law is so specific that it mandates the use specifically of a technology that's going to be out of, you know, out of fashion, uh, outdated very quickly, then we waste our time. And actually, we can have bad consequences come from those laws. In this case, the mandate to do um, animal testing first, as we ju- were just talking about, huge impact on animals. But then also, as it turns out, animal testing is less and less a good you know, way of testing the drug safety. And as it turns out, many drugs that do well in animals are actually toxic for humans. So what made sense at the time was a technology that was all we had, right? In the 30s, all we had was animal testing. We barely had human like, blood testing, right? So the, the science then was so you know, primitive compared to what we have today. Um, but by enshrining the very specific technology that drug companies have to use into law, we end up with an outdated, outdated law like that we can repeal finally, hopefully, um, you know, decades later. So that's the issue: is when we try to be so specific about the technology and the, the particulars of a process that we run into those issues of outdated, harmful laws.
3: Elise Omidro joining us. Just to put it in perspective, though, you just brought this up. Medical science changes really, really fast. You know, 1938. You know, we're not using penicillin yet widespread we know what it is but it hasn't been fully approved until the mid-40s this is an area where it really shows out that laws are not updated though because something like medicals i mean shoot just go back to covid two years ago how much medical science has changed and our perception of it has changed these are things that just doesn't get talked about but when you go into something specific It usually is some kind of a mass thing like an animal testing, something that gets the collective conscious going. And then all of a sudden we pay attention to these kinds of laws. That always seems to be how it works. And I guess that's just part of human nature. But it is a way that we need to kind of review our laws of like maybe it shouldn't take something that's a hot button issue to get something that's really important, like updating FDA guidance, which we all saw what happens when FDA guidance isn't clear and these sorts of things.
1: Exactly. Like this law here. The, the proposal the proposed law the FDA modernization Act 2.0 what it would do is it says you can use computer models or you can use organs on chips and I can talk more about those or you can use another way that works right it's not specific it's not exhaustive I think that's a great way of legislating because you're keeping it open for um, for uh, innovators to do what they do best which is develop the next best technology if you can do that you obviously need laws we don't want you know we don't want a, um, a, a total lack of laws, especially when it comes to things as important as drug testing. But you can actually freeze it in a way that's that's broad enough that anyone can, you know, try something new. And that's the goal here with this this bill.
3: Yeah, let's just deal with the animal testing part for a minute. Look, I am I have five dogs, a cat, and multiple children. I'm an animal lover by any definition. I love animals. I got a rescue that we're medically healing right now, getting ready to have surgery. I had a dog at the vet this morning, okay? I like animals. The animals animal testing is always going to be icky, even for people who think it's a scientific necessity. We understand that has been abused over the years. But on the on the whole, we understand, yes, you need a living being to test some of this stuff out on before you go to a human in most cases. But like you said, some of that's changing. We can artificially create organs now. We can artificially test things. We can use computer modeling. Some of this has changed. But some of this is still, you're going to have to put this in a living organism and see what happens. How do you deal with that part of it? I know it's a big issue. I know we have all kinds of organizations about animal testing. How do you deal with something that at some part, it's still going to be a scientific necessity for the near future?
1: I think there's part of it, you just have to accept that that's how it is, right? We still, as a society, value human life, probably above, uh, definitely above uh, animal life. So um, to the extent that those tests do help people, they will be around. Now, I think this, the, this type of, of um, law change is, is that exactly what's going to get us out of the reliance on on human, um, on, excuse me, this is exactly what's going to get us out of um, animal testing because you're allowing those smaller innovators, it's maybe biotechs, so I think biotechs are among those that are most excited about the potential of this law passing, it's biotech that are most interested in in getting this law changed because they have other ways of testing drugs than animals. So organs on chips are a new technology. They're completely made, you know, in a lab. It's, it's a, a um, synthetic device that imitates an organ. So for instance, a lung, you can have a, a little piece of plastic of sorts that breathes and like, that functions like a lung and you can test different compounds on an illness inside that and see how a real lung would react. This has become so um, powerful that you can really make great progress before you take that drug to a human trial. Same thing for computer models. They've become really good at at testing different things. So this is how you get out of it. You can not eliminate it right away. I don't think, unless you really have the will of, you know, all of Congress or, you know, a majority and, and more to get the, the, the idea of animal testing, you know, banned, but you can still quickly eliminate it by allowing innovators to be innovative. The amazing thing about um, moving away from animal testing is that it's much cheaper to do it that way, right? Like you can imagine that animal testing is very pricey to do. You have to have all the animals on hand, you have to take care of them, have to have, um, you know, be compliant because there are obviously lots of rules around how you do the the testing. Those things are very um, expensive and complex, So they keep out smaller entrants from the biotech space. And by removing those mandates, you can actually allow more entrants to come in, more competition, that becomes cheaper. And who doesn't want a, a cheaper drug? I think there's such a high demand for more affordable drugs right now. So when you make the process less expensive, you actually drive the market in that direction because the bigger players that are gonna wanna continue to do human testing, they, they actually won't want to um, uh, you know, do it anymore to the extent that they have cheaper ways of doing it. So I think this can really be eliminated through competition.
3: Zami Dro joining us. There's another component to this, and you talked about the cost of it. The reason these drugs are so costly is because the R&D is astronomical, and some of that's regulation. We've talked to you about that before, and we'll debate it some other time. But on top of that, and on top of the moral argument, there's a thing about doing these drugs where it just takes forever to get it through the R&D and the process, and then the approval process with the FDA. Part of removing these mandates, this will also speed up getting these drugs through the process not in an in you know not in an in a uh, see neither one of us can talk today. not in an irresponsible way, but just by removing a layer of testing or maybe allowing a technology that's a little bit faster and a little bit cheaper. this also speeds up a process that for far too many people that are waiting on the next wonder drug or the next miracle drug maybe years or even a decade away this speeds up the process doesn't it
1: it does It makes the process smoother, less expensive, just faster that's one big advantage the other advantage and this is something that i don't think gets a lot of attention but when you start human trials people start taking the drug right you have the placebo group that thinks they're taking the drug i mean they don't they are not actually and then you have the people who are really trying the drug and in any case when um the the drug doesn't turn out to be uh, powerful and maybe when it turns out to be toxic You've given hope to all these patients that a drug is making it to human trials, like people are expecting something to happen and they can get very excited at the prospect of finally finding relief. And I think by uh, encouraging innovators to get in the space because it's now less expensive, you have more, you know, more um, uh, patients that are going to be able to access drugs that potentially work. And I think that's really exciting, too.
3: Yeah. Ali Amidra joining us. I think you're in part to this piece. Again, it's in the Wall Street Journal. We're going to link to it, read the entire piece. It's excellent. I think you bring up, going back to that wider point about regulation for just a second, I'm going to quote you here. You say, this mandate should serve as a cautionary tale, enshrining state-of-the-art technology and the laws risk undermining the development of a better method. We should take the long view legislating. I doubt anybody in 1938, thought it would be 2022 before anybody reviewed this law. We see this in other areas. We see this with the EU doing the USBC mandates. We see it in the medical field. We saw it during COVID where we found out, hey, maybe some of that mandated stuff doesn't really need to be mandated if it's an emergency. You can pick anything you want. It's a general problem we have is we want to legislate for the now without the long view in mind. That really is a good lesson to take from this beyond the animal testing and beyond the length of, you know, these quote unquote, zombie laws that stay on the books for years. We just don't do a real good job of unintended consequences and what a law may look like 20, 30, 40 years from now, do we?
1: We sadly don't. And this is something, this is really my wider point and maybe something that I care about people taking away from, from this story is we can always do better when it comes to legislating for future generations. We have to believe that people are going to come up with better ways of doing things than we currently have now. And we also want to keep the economy economy dynamic. Uh, There's no reason for us to um, protect the current industries. And that's usually where those laws are from, right? Like there is an industry around specific mandates and they will lobby for those mandates to be included in law because they profit from there being a mandate that benefits them. And so the more we move away from this highly specific, technology-specific language and toward a more open model of innovation and a more um, flexible, you know, way of competing, we actually end up with better um, better laws and a more dynamic economy that allows everyone to come in and and uh, innovate and flourish.
3: Yeah. And if there's one sector of society and technology that you do not want to stagnate, it is medical technology because you need it to continue to grow and push boundaries and find cures for it. Look how far we've come on so many medical fronts. And you know, Unfortunately, during COVID, people got it, started pulling back a little bit, and now we're seeing what happened with things coming back. You never want to stagnate with medical stuff, so it's very important our government doesn't do that as well. Uh, Elise Omidro, always love having you. You explain this stuff way better than I can, and I always learn something talking to you. This is a great piece. You're right. This is a bigger issue. I look forward to you writing and covering some more. So until we get you back on tell again, let folks know where they can keep up with you. Uh, this piece will be in the Wall Street Journal, but let them know what else you have going on as well.
1: Absolutely. So currently I'm studying uh, single peer systems around the world. So this is going to be my next focus for a little bit. Uh, But in the meantime, you can catch my writings um, uh, on LinkedIn. Simply that's the only place I I, um, am active on social media. And my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E. And last name is A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z.
3: Yep. And for those of you like me who have trouble with silent letters, it's on the lower third graphics on the YouTube. We'll also link to it uh, in the in the notes for all the podcasting folks. Uh, Lee's always enjoy our conversations. Look forward to having you back soon. Thank you for the time, ma'am. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Ah, Welcome to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing. You have your time, and we never want to waste it here. That's why we do what we do, turning down the noise of the news cycle, getting to the things that really matter, talking to knowledgeable guests, giving you good information to try to discern the times we live in because it's been really loud and there's a lot of stuff going on, especially in the political season. And let's start right there. Let's talk a little bit about communication. The basic building block of politics is not policy. We tend to do things backwards sometimes. It's not polling. We tend to focus on that because we want to understand what's going on. But the basic building block of politics is actually messaging. A couple of days ago in Politico, and this got a lot of coverage. I was gone because I've been out West uh, attending a family function in Denver for a couple of days. But the headline in Politico was Biden's, quote, worst performing message And the long and the short of it. This was written by Sam Steen and Alex Thompson for Politico. Uh, Stan Greenberg, longtime pollster and consultant for the Democratic Party, going all the way back to the Clinton years, said this, quote, uh, it's our worst performing messaging. I've tested it. Now, what messaging was he talking about? Well, he was talking about President Biden and the Democratic Party constantly talking about all the things that they have accomplished. Quote, this is Greenberg, not me, Greenberg, saying this. I did Biden's exact words, his exact speech, and that's the test where we lost all our leads, meaning the Democratic Party in Poland. It said to the voters that this election is about my accomplishments as a leader and not about the challenges you're experiencing. It, it's an article of bad faith. This is Sam Stein and Alex Thompson writing that the party is deeply hampered by its inability or unwillingness to tout its own accomplishments. But what is that conventional wisdom was just wrong, but terribly harmfully wrong. And that's what Stan Greenberg is saying in the political piece. We'll link to it. Read the whole thing yourself, make up your own mind. But let's just stay big picture for a second. The basics of politics is communication and the basis of communication is not just saying something but making sure it's heard and understood the way you're communicating it let's take politics out of it for just a second most of you at some point in your life have had a boss a supervisor a family member a parent a spouse somebody in your life who wanted to tell you what a great job they were doing just think for a second how you took that did you really want to hear about what a great job they were doing Part of leadership, I'm going to steal from my dad here. My dad always told me uh, that leadership was getting things done. Good leadership was convincing people to get things done. And great leadership is making people think it was their idea to get it done in the first place. Well, that applies to politics, too. And what it gets to the basics of the communication we're talking about here is you can't talk away what people are experiencing or feeling or thinking, even if it may not be completely attached to reality, if they're feeling it, if they're experiencing it, if they're thinking it, you can't talk them out of it. Now, there are confusing economic numbers. That's why we have economists on this show constantly to explain this stuff to us, because I don't know a lot about economics either. I know what I read. So we have a lot of different economists all across the spectrum come on the program and talk about economics. And we've always had the same question. People are confused because there's some economic indicators that are very, very good, like un- low unemployment numbers and production numbers and consumer spending numbers. And then there are economic numbers that are really, really bad, like inflation, like gas prices, like some of the trade stuff that gets a little complicated. Things like taxes, things like cost of living adjustments things that get really complicated really fast. Those are confusing things, right? They're confusing to me. That's why we have guests on to talk about it. But people are concerned about the economy. And if you're touting how great a job you've been doing when people are concerned about the economy, things like gas prices, things like inflation, things like the cost of things on the store shelf, you can't talk those things away. So like that boss, like that spouse, like that coworker, like anybody you've ever met in your life, who when you ask them how things are going, they just start listing off all their great things that they've done, but they don't really affect you one way or the other. Remember how that feels and go back to how we opened this conversation. Communication is the basics of politics, not parties, not policy, not trends, communication. Can you get people to understand what you are either going to do for them or have done for them? When you're an incumbent in office, You have to run on your record or you have to run on this is why this didn't work and we want to do this instead next time around. Now, that's a lot harder sell. So people try to accentuate the good things they've done. Every politician's ever done that. The problem is if people are hurting at the gas pump and they're hurting at the store shelves and inflation's biting into them and interest rates start going up, which makes things cost more for them. There's not a whole lot of accomplishments of things that happened last year, two years ago, six months ago that may not directly affect them right now here today, that overrides that message. And you need to tool your message accordingly. So again, take politics out of it. Free advice, President Biden. This goes for Republican lawmakers as well that are running for office. Nobody wants to hear about your accomplishments unless it's an accomplishment that directly affects them. Sure, you pass spending bills. Every Congress and everybody in both parties votes for those things. I get it. But that's not really going to help folks that are worried, they're scared, they're concerned. You got to tool your messaging accordingly. This White House has had one of the worst comm shops I've ever seen. And we just sat through four years of Trump, who was a live wire, where his comm shop had to run around behind him cleaning up almost everything he said. Some of that's happening now with President Biden. It's baffling. Some of it's because people like Ron Klain spend too much time in their media bubble instead of dealing with how most people feel. Again, I'm going to repeat I'm gonna emphasize communication is the basics of politics. And if you fail communication, all the policy in the world isn't gonna make up for it because you've already lost the people and they're not gonna be listening anymore. Politicians, office holders, policy wonks, commentators, adjust accordingly. Can't communicate. What you're saying will not matter. More tell right after this. back to her tell okay she was not nice to me off air on email she's like are you sure you want to talk about this again i'm like no but we have to because y'all keep doing it up there our friend who covers alaska alaska policy institute a whole lot of other stuff although she's physically sitting in montana well you just pick like the most beautiful states to hang out in it's amazing sarah Montebano is back on the program again how are you my friend
4: i'm doing well how about yourself
3: i'm doing better than y'all's ranked choice voting what is going on you you and your spectator piece we've linked to it uh, you just come right out and call it the shambles that it is here. Uh, I'll use your verbiage. Uh, Alaska's ranked chose voting was a fiasco, and the places like Nevada should take note. We've gone over this a little bit, so let's, let's just start with the big picture part of this. The, is it an idea problem, or was it an execution problem, or some ratio thereof?
4: This is definitely a structural problem with ranked choice voting. Um, You know, fair vote and progressive cheerleaders like those organizations, um, they say that it mitigates vote splitting, uh, minimizes strategic voting, and even reduces political polarization. Uh, But the truth is that all of these things are baked into the process, and I think it makes it a lot worse than a single vote system.
3: Now, part of the problem here was you had, of course, um, the long term congressman died in the middle of this. So you have back to back elections for the same seat, which really confused everybody on a lot of levels. You've also talked about just physically here. The way the ballot was laid out was kind of a mess. The fact that you're voting on, you know, to fill the seat and then you're turning around and voting for the longer term, basically at the same time with a couple weeks difference just the mechanics of this thing got really messed up. And I know people want to talk about the political theory and rank choice voting and the pros and cons of it. Just the basics of filling out the ballot and getting it in people's hands to vote. That's the simple part of this that really seemed to fail and break down before you get to any of the theory. Right.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. It was extremely confusing, I think for a lot of people. And what's worse is that on August 16th, the general election for the special race for House uh, was on the backside of the ballot, which had all the primary elections, which were choose one for November that were are coming up on here. Um, so this whole special election situation was a, a really odd first test of ranked choice voting in Alaska. Uh, and that was complicated by Algros, the nonpartisan candidate who got the third most votes. In the primary, he dropped out, and so there were only three candidates on the special election ballot rather than uh, four. So it was really interesting. Uh, Just logistically, there were a lot of wrenches thrown in this time around.
3: Yeah, now on the political side of this, of course, the big name was Sarah Palin trying to do a comeback. Al Gross is known from the last cycle. We'll set him aside for the minute. Mary Paltola is the one who came out of this thing. She came out even stronger in the second part of the voting. So she seems pretty secure now. Democrat. Now, Alaska's always been a little. Let's just be fair. Y- y'all a little weird politically uh, for good reason. It's just different up there.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: What does people want to draw this out and make? Is there really a lesson to learn here? Or is this something that's going to be unique to not just Alaska being a little bit different, but also the chaos of this election on top of it? How strong of a candidate is she really? Is she going to have staying power when they kind of figure this out and we have a more quote unquote normal election, whatever that means here in two years when she comes up again?
4: Yeah. So she's actually on the ballot this November and we're basically rerunning the same House race uh, with the fourth uh, candidate being Libertarian Chris Bayh. Um, so we're looking again at Palin, Baggage, Peltola and Bay, and you know, the early polling says Peltola's, you know, getting, you know, 45% or so of first choice votes. And then, you know, that Chris by he might be knocked out first. His votes will get split, uh, probably mostly to Peltola, and that almost gets her to where she needs to be for a majority. Um, so I think, you know, she really wasn't well known in Alaska before uh, she was, you know, put up on this, this election, this early special election ballot. Um, And I think people really rallied behind her, especially because Gross dropped out and he endorsed her. And he's now running again in November. So that's that's a big part of it. I think Uh, she'll be able to perhaps keep her seat, which is going to be odd to have a Democratic representative from Alaska. But we've always been a little independent minded.
3: Speaking of independent minded, you got a quasi independent senator who ducked into this race in the last few days. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, who's always been a little bit of an odd duck politically. Of course, again, it's Alaska. It's just different. Um, Of course, we know she's had her fights. She's very much a centrist in whatever way you want to define that word. She basically came out and endorsed Patola, and they seem to be working. They have at least some kind of a public communication relationship, whether it's for their own good or their own political purposes or whatever. This is a real thing. They they have talked. They came out publicly. What does that do to this race? And what does that do going forward for both of them? Because, you know, Lisa Murkowski is, of course, the name out of Alaska politics. Now, With Don Young died. What do you make of that?
4: That's an interesting question. I think Murkowski has always known that under ranked choice voting, she's going to do very well. I wrote an article for the Spectator World, um, basically outlining how she doesn't really need the Alaska Republican Party to like her or or uh, endorse her in any sense um, in order to possibly win this election. An early polling says she's doing very well. Um, You know, Democrats are going to. Democrats that are supporting Peltola anyway are likely to give a first or second choice vote to Murkowski uh, because they know that she's a very crucial swing vote um, in the Senate there. And, um, you know, I think Peltola is getting a lot of cred for bipartisanship from this too. Uh, that you know, Republicans looking at their representatives might say, "Gosh, I really don't like Sarah Palin. I don't really know about Nick Begich, uh, but you know, Paltolo's gotten this endorsement. Maybe she'll be able to work across the aisle." Um, and so that's that's I think the idea behind that strategy.
3: Sarah Montabana joining us, of course, a Young Voices contributor at Alaska Policy Institute. Love talking to her. She goes all the way back to our radio days before we we're actually even doing her tell. You're one of my original radio guests. You've been around for a little while. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the rank choice part of this for just a second, though. A lot of people endorse this as a theory. We talked about the practice of it was a little jacked up. All right. We have deemed you the election czar of ranked choice voting. Give us one or two things you would say that uh, let's pick a state here. You're in Montana. Montana has decided to go to ranked choice voting. You're going to go, okay, but we saw what happened in Alaska. You need to make sure you fix what? Give us one or two of the top line items of what you got to make sure you get right. If you're going to do ranked choice voting.
4: That's an interesting question too. The, biggest problem with ranked choice voting is the fact that you can, it's a political science question, really. Rank, ranking your favorite candidate higher can actually hurt them. And that's not a good uh, trait of any election system. You don't want to have to think counterintuitively of, well, you know, if I rank my candidate higher, is that going to actually, you know, knock them out sooner or something like that. Um, And so I would love to see you know if we can't go back to one person one vote something like that um, if ranked choice voting could be fixed that you know anytime you rank your candidate your favorite candidates higher that that's good for them and uh, that that would be really something I'd like to see because I think the the strategizing that voters have to do uh, in order to really uh, mobilize and and think strategically about this is a too much it's it's yeah. not
3: yeah, in your piece in The Spectator, you called it that it was unfair, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here for, for brevity. You said it was unfair to have voters having to figure out game theory. Yes. If, if we're going to have a basis system of one person, one vote, which has kind of been the foundational to representative democracy in America since the beginning, <laughs> disenfranchise is too strong of a word. And by the way, Alaska chose, y'all chose this. You wanted to do this. The state, nobody's, oh, well, I mean, it, you, yeah, that's how elections work, though. You win or you don't. Yeah, Y'all chose to do this, but it does seem like and I don't want to insult voters either. So we need to have a better way to discuss this. But you shouldn't have to have a scratch pad to go to vote for somebody. In my opinion, my humble but accurate opinion, you shouldn't, you know, flipping over a ballot to get to the other part of the ballot. That's I mean, sometimes it's necessary. I know our municipal elections, we have to do that. That seems like it seems like we're adding stuff on the voter that's making it unfair to the voter to make the basic decision of who they want to vote for. Is that a fair way to put it?
4: Absolutely. We need to think about that. Not only do voters have to do the research on all of these different candidates, they're not just coming out at the end and saying, this is the person I like. They have to decide how they rank these different people by preference. And and that can sometimes be a very easy choice. Um, but that's, that's not necessarily. And then you have to think about what's going on on the rest of the ballot. I mean, you're looking at judicial uh, seats, yes or no, a, a bunch of those. You're looking at ballot initiatives. You're looking at several different races, four candidates each. It just really starts to multiply the amount of research that voters have to do. Um, and sometimes that's not easily available to them. Um, you just get what, you know, is sent out in your ballot book. You know, this is what your candidate wants you to know. Uh, and so that's that's not always an easy process. And asking ranked choice voting to really not only do your research and figure out who you like the most, uh, but how you rank the rest of them. It's a difficult question.
3: Yeah. Sarah Monteballon joining us. Uh, you phrase this because you wrote this, you know, writing device kind of talking to Nevada because Nevada's going to have this on the ballot. Nevada is very interesting. It's very much a swing state. It's a changing state. The demographics are changing. I know the state well. I lived in Las Vegas for several years. They're also an early primary state for both parties in the presidential elections. Oh, okay. Now, now Alaska getting it is one thing because Alaska, and I don't mean this insulting, at all, it is a bit of an outlier. Y'all up there by yourself. You have different so, kind of politics.
4: Always last to submit our votes.
3: <laughs> yeah, but it's an but it's an outlier, and it's not. Nevada is a big, big deal when you come to things like presidential elections. It's a big I'm worried you're going to wind up if they if they do this and they don't do it correctly. And Nevada's got some real challenges, I'll say, because, you know, it is Vegas and then it's the rest of the state Um, and Reno to a little bit lesser extent. There's a lot of rural. The federal government owns like 80, 90 percent of the state of Nevada. It's a strange state politically. But. I'm really worried if they do a ranked choice system voting and then you go into a presidential year, we're going to get into a mess like we had in Iowa in 2020. Is that a fair concern to have? Is that something places like Nevada? Obviously, the voters need to consider it. But if the voters decide to do this, the people that actually do elections are really going to have to bear down and make sure they have something that's operable and practical to make the election work, and that's what you're really driving at with trying to warn them, isn't it?
4: Definitely. It's it's a huge logistical problem, and I would remind Nevada that if you're looking to be leading these things, Alaska, we didn't tabulate our results until two weeks after, and that's a pretty standard timeline for ranked choice voting uh, because you have to look at any hand-counted ballots. You have to do at the actual tabulations. Um, so, you know, kiss election night results goodbye honestly.
3: <laughs> yeah. And Nevada's coming from a, a challenge. Yeah. And they're going to be coming from a caucusing system, which is what drove it. Cause they're like, we don't want to do a caucus anymore. They're going to be picking between an open primary and ranked choice voting. So it's not like a yes or no on ranked choice. They're going to be picking between the open primary as well, which by the way, has its own pros and cons. We'll save that for another time. Sarah Montabano yes. joining us. Um, big picture though. Looks like Murkowski's pretty much entrenched for however long she wants to stay. There was a lot of, you know, because she fought with Trump and stuff. There was some back and forth about her being in danger. I think that's passed now. Um, Don Young passed away, so obviously that's gone. Outside of Murkowski, though, what's the state of Alaska's politics? It's always been kind of contrarian. It's all it doesn't always neatly break down party lines. There's obviously that independent spirit streak that's required if you're going to live in Alaska in the first place. What's kind of the future politically of the state it's not really a swing state it's not really a blue red state in a traditional sense just give people in the lower 48 a little sense of where you think this is going the next couple of years
4: absolutely Alaska tends to be fairly Republican in um, localities in the governor and and a lot of you know different offices at the local level um, what we mostly see is that Anchorage drags along the rest of the state with um, Blue policies and um, politicians and stuff like that, and so it's it's not the maggot type Republicanism because Alaska depends so much on natural resources and getting these federal, um, getting these federal bills through that allow you know natural resource development and federal leases and things like that, and so you know any politician that wants to survive in D.C. Uh, needs to kind of do what Don Young does did. Um, and, you know, bring home pork barrel projects that are necessary um, for Alaska. And so I don't think that's going to change. I think Murkowski, Peltola, whoever is eventually in these seats is going to have to do a lot of that. Um, And I don't see that changing.
3: Is this the last we see of Sarah Palin on the state and national stage, you think?
4: Oh, boy, I don't know. I think a lot of Alaskans hope that it is, um, but it is difficult. I just... I'm not seeing the hard campaigning that she did for the special election. I'm not seeing so much of that in the lead up to November 8th um, coming up. But, you know, it's it's very possible that she'll disappear for 10 years. It's very possible that she will consider running for another office in 2024 or
3: 2026. Yes. Yeah. Six. <laughs> I have to wait and see. One thing we know, we will continue to have Sarah Montabano on the program. We love talking to her. Uh, Give folks a chance to follow you, what you've got going on, some of your writing you got going on, your Young Voices work, your policy work. Till they see you again on Hurtell, let them know how to keep up with you.
4: Absolutely. You should find me at www.AlaskaPolicyForum.org. You'll find my writings about education. I'm actually an education policy analyst, not elections. Um, And uh, you can also find me on my Young Voices talent page where I'm the Northwest regional leader for Young Voices.
3: Yeah, because there's nothing going on in education right now. We actually, I've, I've, we're going to have <laughs> you back on to talk a little education because some of the new numbers that are coming out are just startling. But uh, it's election season, so you got to get the election out of the way. So you're doing good work doing double duty, my friend. Sarah Montabano. always enjoy talking. Thank you for the time today.
4: It's a delight. Thank you.
3: Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to her Tell. Okay, the most appearances on the program in history. The Street Continues and Extends. Dr. Michael Siegel, that's uh, the DR, real kind of uh, smart doctor with letters after his name for those of you from Logan, friend of the program, Ordinary Times contributor. He flies spacecraft. He teaches young minds. He does all sorts of things. Michael, how are you, sir?
0: I am good. How are you
3: today? Nah, I'm hanging in there. Uh let's start terrestrially, if that's still a word. I'm not sure if it is or not. Um, your latest throughput. Every Thursday he does a science feature for Ordinary Times. This is one we've gone over before, but it's gotten new life the last couple of weeks. The COVID lab leak theory. Of course, we all know about the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know about wet markets. We heard that we've debated this for what two years now. Yep. But <laughs> You had to write about it because there's been some new developments that have really thrown fuel on the fire, as you say.
0: Yeah, there was a a Republican report from the Senate staffers this week that said that they thought that the lab leak theory was more likely than not to be true. And uh, Vanity Fair ProPublica did a publication that was based partly on that report and also from uh, diplomatic messages uh, and from the Chinese government that seemed to indicate uh, some very big problems with the operations of the Wuhan Institute. Now that's, we've been getting hints of that for a while, but um, so far there's not been a smoking gun. There, what you have with the lab leak theory is a lot of suggestions, you know, just starting from the fact that it's the Wuhan Institute and the outbreak happened in the city of Wuhan. Now, Wuhan is a massive city and the wet markets have been previously identified as a potential source of a, out, viral outbreak, so it's not that's not completely definitive. But when you dig into the Republican report, and especially when you dig into the ProPublica report, it's still just a lot of conjecture. There's no real solid evidence. We do know that Wuhan had problems with their BSL four biosafety level four facility, but that's not unusual. Um, that that's not really new news. Um, This summer, there were two papers published in Science, though, that looked at the COVID-19 virus from a biological perspective, looked at its DNA, looked at its evolution, and they concluded that a zoonotic outbreak, an outbreak from a bat or a pangolin or something like that, was far more likely than a lab leak. We're probably unlikely to know for sure, and we're especially unlikely to know for sure, because China has been very opaque on this issue. Their investigations have been kind of cursory and secretive, and they're not really sharing the kind of information that they need to share to so we can definitively nail nail this down. And we might not even if they were, we might not know for sure. Um, So I would say that you know this is a lot of smoke but not a lot of fire, a lot of conjecture and suggestion that plays into a lot of people's priors on this. Um, One of our commenters pointed out, you know, this the idea that the virus broke out randomly. From a wet market is scarier than the idea that this was a lab leak, something that could be more easily prevented. But um, in the end, the evidence still weighs heavily on a zoonotic origin. It's not, I would say the lab leak is not a conspiracy theory. If you're talking about a lab leak, if you're talking more of the pandemic, you know, Bill Gates did this, so we could all have 5G chips installed on in us or whatever. That's a conspiracy theory. But I think while the lab leak theory is not ruled out, it's it's very unlikely at this point.
3: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Here's how I break down news stories, and this is where I have a problem with this one. Um, how we get the news is usually just about as important as the bit of news we're getting, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a couple parts here, and you already touched on one of them. We can't trust anything coming out of China because we know they lie, cheat, and steal because they're a
0: dictatorship that has are, are obsessed over information control. And image why we had the outbreak in the first place because right a hard time denying that this thing was communicable to humans. I mean, that right. might not we might not have contained it anyway, but that certainly didn't help.
3: Yeah, so we've got the China piece. You mentioned this is Republican staffers, but it was put out into the media, the mass media, by Vanity Fair and ProPublica these are not two organizations that are normally really super friendly to Republicans and or right-wing political entities. ProPublica is very open about being activist journalists. They actually do really good investigative work. They're biased, just program that in. But when they investigate something, it's usually pretty solid. They know what they're doing. Vanity Fair, of course, is a very progressive liberal publication. Normally when they agree with something from the right, you would go, okay, well, these folks don't usually get along. There should be something to that. That kind of piqued my interest. So, If there's a lot of smoke and no fire, why are we having these convergences, do you think? Because that does get people's attention. That lends credibility for some folks, but are they all just chasing threads, or is there some there there?
0: I think that if this did turn out to be a lab leak, it would be one of the biggest news stories ever. You know, People talk about media bias and the media-bearing stories. If a left-leaning organization were to discover the smoking gun and say, this absolutely came from Wuhan they'd win a Pulitzer Prize, you know, they, they'd, it'd be the biggest story of the year that this came from the lab. And it's not, you know, an unreasonable supposition. We have had outbreaks from labs before. The last person to die of smallpox got it from a lab leak in the UK. The, we've had outbreaks specifically of the SARS virus in China and Singapore from people doing research on it. It didn't spread because it was contained and it wasn't COVID-19, which was way more infectious. We have had these outbreaks. So it's not that unreasonable a theory. I think, um, and this is still very early days, there's still a lot of debate going on about the ProPublica piece. I think they may have jumped the gun a little bit. There are a lot of people saying that they mistranslated the Chinese documents or misunderstood them. Um, and certainly interpreting government documents from a government like China is, is very difficult. And there are a number of other people, there was a virologist who uh, went on Twitter and put out, how all his criticisms of the piece that they didn't wait for before they published. Um, So I I think that they anticipated this was going to be a big story and may have jumped the gun here.
3: Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel joined us. You and I talked a lot because you were kind of our go-to COVID guy during the COVID pandemic at ordinary times, by the way, we're linking to both the Vanity Fair and ProPublica piece and also the, uh, the congressional report. Read it all for yourself. Same thing Michael says in his piece. Read the whole thing for yourself. Make up your own mind. We're discussing this as if you've read it. Make sure you do your homework here because there's a lot of details involved. But we talked a lot about one of the things that really made the pandemic a mess was communication. We learned really quick that scientists and the common folk don't communicate real good. Academics don't communicate real good. Doctors don't communicate real good. And any of those three that are also government bureaucratic officials, they really don't communicate very good, right? We've established Mm -hmm. that. So you understand where people are coming from with this when it's like, well, hey, when we brought this up in the early days, you were deplatformed. You were told, no, you're crazy. Don't even ask this question. And now we're coming back to this. You understand where people get a little skittish with this stuff because of the way it was communicated, because of the way it was handled. You know, believe the science, all that mess that we've talked over and over and over again until we're sick over for two years. You know, this isn't in a vacuum. This story is getting more life because of the way people treated it, because of the way people manipulated it, and because of the way you said it before. The way people put their priors on it before. This isn't in a. This isn't in a vacuum. This is a sequence of events that brought us back to this story yet again. Right?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that the lab leak theory was dismissed early on and with far more certainty than it warranted. Um, certainly, there was a lot of. Junk science being done that they said proved the lab theory, like, oh, these sequences only have a one in X chance of occurring. Well, that's why we don't get disease breaks every year. You know, or there were a lot of I think a lot of people were concerned that validating the lab leak hypothesis would link to really crazy conspiracy theories about a pandemic or that China was using this as a bioweapon against the West or something like that. Um, but I think that there was a necessity, and I wrote about it at the time, to divide between people saying this may have leaked from a lab by accident or even on purpose versus this was some giant, vast conspiracy to kill millions of people or make Bill Gates rich or whatever their conspiracy was. I I do agree that there was far too early, I don't want to say far too aggressive dismissal of lumping this in with conspiracy theories rather than what it was, which was legitimate legitimate question of, hey, there's a virology institute just down, just in this same city that researches coronaviruses. Is there a chance that these are related? All right. It now appears that it's unlikely, but I don't think you can ever rule it out. And so while I would say pandemic pan- conspiracy theories are disinformation or whatever, or crazy, I would say that saying this came from a lab leak is, uh, while not favored by the evidence is not a crackpot theory at all.
3: Let's get to the core of this as far as um, we're involved, the common folks on our social media, in the commentariat. This really gets to the core of how do we discuss something as complicated as this when it comes to this disease? You've talked about it before on this program. Science. Good science is okay with getting questioned. It's like good religion is good with getting questioned. Good politics is good with getting questioned. You know, one of your signs of integrity is are you okay with getting questions and handling tough questions? We just touched on the whole, you know, believe the science, you're not allowed to ask any questions. That's not good science. At the same time, there's some line in there where you depart from, you know, honest questions, honest skepticism. I'll go, I'll say healthy skepticism, because healthy skepticism is a core part of science, right? Mm -hmm. Where's the line when we're discussing this stuff of, okay, we need to be, you know, discerning of what we're being told here, but it's maybe a topic we don't know a lot about. Before we descend into, you know, crack pottery, as you so aptly called it, the conspiracy theory, all the noise and nonsense out there. Where's that line? How do we tiptoe up to it and how do we don't cross it, Professor?
0: That is a very good and difficult question. Um, I would say. Look for when people start trying to attribute motives or trying to hammer it into a political frame that science concerns itself with questions of fact, and when you start expanding that to motives and trying to ram it into whatever frame you want it to be in, that's where you're going more towards the crack pottery side. So to return to the lab leak theory, asking legitimate scientific questions, did this come from a lab? Was this related to lab research? You know, these are these are factual questions. You're trying to ascertain facts. Can we look at this virus, virus's gene code and see That it was engineered? Can we look at the pattern of the outbreak and see that it was related to the Wuhan Institute? These are things that have definitive answers. Where you go into conspiracy theories is when you you say, Well, I think China wanted to do this. I think Bill Gates wanted to do this. I think the big pharma companies wanted to do this. When you start attributing motives, that's where you're leaking more and more into conspiracy theory and really mind reading uh, and so forth. When you're trying to cram this into a political frame of anti-Big Pharma or anti-Republican or anti-Democrat. That's where you start leaning more and more into conspiracy theories when you get away from the facts and more towards speculation.
3: Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us as he often does. This is where it gets back into politics, though, because you cannot take the political angle out of this. Like we just said, our public health system, we've learned it the hard way. We like to think it's, it's an independent organization. It's not. It's a political entity because it's funded by the government and it's a bureaucracy and there's politics involved. Let's just all be adults. We're dealing with China. That's a geopolitical foe. That is not a fair player. That is not an honest dealer of information and or anything else it, because they're an adversary in a lot of ways. That's where the politics of this comes in, and there's no way to separate that. So how do we deal with that? Because even as we're trying to find scientific truth, Look, all those scientists in China, they're all connected because they don't get those jobs unless they're connected. Right. Let's let's all be honest. So how do we deal with the political part of this? Because as we've learned now, public health has a political component that we're just going to have to learn how to deal with here.
0: I think we that we have to kind of try as best we can to keep the science as a separate issue, focusing science on the facts and less on interpretation. You know, this was something that actually um, anti Fauci talked about a little earlier on um, before sort of he became this figure in the in the media that his job as a scientist was to inform the politicians of things from a scientific point of view. And their job was to balance things and consider the political uh, con- consequences, you know. If the scientists had had their way, for example, you would have shut down the entire country for like three weeks. But the politicians had to say, that's not going to work. What can we do? What's doable? What's workable? And so I think you have to think of the political sphere as sort of being having science as a component of that, informing the debate. But ultimately, the political sphere has to take into account in diplomacy with China, It has to take into account economics, it has to take into account other factors. I wrote a piece a while ago about this. You know, There was a, a piece about how we should have this rationalia, a society entirely determined by rational principles. And I pointed out that that doesn't really work because many of the questions we deal with are moral questions or economic questions that don't have a scientific answer. You know, you take the abortion issue, for example, science can tell you when certain fetal developments happen, but it can't answer the moral question of when is a fetus a human being. When does it have a right to live? That's a moral question that we are debating very fiercely right now. And so when you talk about something like a pandemic, we can inform people what this disease does, how it spreads, how lethal it is, what are the long-term consequences of an infection, how well do these treatments work, how well do these vaccines work. But ultimately, that is feeding into the political question of, all right, what policies do we have in place?
3: Right. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel. You know, I don't like to get into the Fauci stuff because he came became an avatar for whatever everybody wanted him to be. Yeah. But since you brought it up, I got to say it. Here, here's where the problem comes with that is if you're a just the fact scientist, you can't go on TV and do commentary because the second you start doing commentary, you've lost the science. And then when you put the science hat back on and go, oh, no, I'm just a scientist. No, that's not how that works. You're one or the other. You know, you don't get to go back and forth. It's not, you know, science hat on, science hat off. That's where that becomes a problem, especially if you're going to be the guy and that guy. You know, I think he, folks like Fauci, some of the criticisms unwarranted, some of them is very fair. If you're going to be in that role and you're going to be the highest paid government employee we got on that matter, and you're the expert, you've got to be aware of that, don't you?
0: I think so. There, there is a one of the things I like to say is, and again, return to this idea of a science based run society. When you mix science and politics, the Ten result is tends to not be to to scientize the politics, but to politicize the science.
3: Does politics always win when it's science? Not to interrupt you, but does politics always win when it's politics versus science? Because it sure looks like it is right now.
0: It feels like that a lot. Um, And it it gets it gets very difficult. And just just to give an example of where the politics uh, across the science in this particular case, when the uh, George Floyd protests started, There was a letter that came out from a bunch of scientists saying, well, the anti-lockdown protests were bad and people shouldn't have done that because that could spread COVID. But these protests are good, so we should allow them even though there's a risk of spreading COVID. And I wrote an article for Ordinary Times saying this is really, really bad. You're destroying your credibility here because you can't say that... Our scientific opinion is changing based on politics. You do have to cross over sometime. I've commented sometimes on the science, and I've sometimes commented on the, on the policy. Um, you know, as sort of a, a, a blogger and a, and a writer and, and, you know, being on Twitter. But you have to be very careful when you cross over those roles, because if there is a perception that your politics are informing the science, you're really damaging your credibility.
3: Yeah, Michael Siegel joining us. This all happened about the same time the Emily Oster piece came out in the Atlantic. If you don't know what we're talking about, we both read it. I've already commented on it. You've heard my comments on it, so I'll let you rebut here in just a second. Uh, the piece was Let's Declare Pandemic Amnesty. We dealt with it on this program. You can go back and listen to that episode from a couple of days ago. Basically, and by the way, the title was horrible. You, you need to actually read the piece to be fair to her. Um, she, I have found her to be mostly level-headed throughout the pandemic on most things. There's some things I don't agree, but she's not been a bomb thrower. Um, I think she's been mostly even-handed. She goes through this pretty, like, look, the education stuff was bad. The government stuff was bad. People not listening about the vaccines was bad. I think she's pretty even-handed. I think the title kind of throws people off. They reacted to the title, didn't read the whole piece. Having said that, the title poses a question that we must deal with, and I've dealt with it. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. So when something about the same time the fuel's getting thrown on lab leak fire, you know this goes into my take on it. And I'll just summarize it real quick, and then I'll give you the floor on it. My take on it was, well, it depends. Are you talking about people that made an honest mistake? Are you talking about people that just didn't know any better and adjusted as they went to the information? Is it people that made a mistake and said, "Hey, I messed up. I didn't know any better." Of course, those people should get a, should get some grace and get some forgiveness. But there's a lot of malicious people that use this for a lot of different reasons that don't have one little iota of regret. No, I don't think they should get amnesty because you need accountability for this stuff. And when you're talking about something like a lab leak theory or the origin theories, that's why you look at that, because you want to prevent this from happening again. And you don't get that without accountability. So I can't get on board with a blanket amnesty, even though I think we all should treat each other a little bit better. Your thoughts after reading the piece and hearing my commentary.
0: Well, I I agree with a lot of what you said. A lot of people had not read the piece and more, more of them are not familiar with who Emily Oster is. She is, if you're jumping on her, you're shooting your own side. She was one of the first ones to say we should be reopening schools. She was saying that in summer 2020. She was saying, she's an economist and she said, looking at the data, it does not look like we're getting a lot of spread in schools. Now, there's a caveat to that. There were mitigations. There was improvements in ventilation, masking, and especially once vaccines came out about six months later, that really made it uh, easier to put people back in school. So she was one of the good guys. You don't want to be jumping on her. She And as you point out, she's also talking about the early days. You know, people forget what it was like two and a half years ago that this was kind of terrifying that we had this disease coming out. We didn't know a lot about it. We knew it was very infectious. We knew it killed. And. In the early days we probably you know we probably did overreact because we didn't want to happen to happen in the united states what happened in italy you know, people like to say well COVID only kills one percent of the people who catch it which as, as though that one percent is not a lot but that's if you're getting first-rate medical care in italy you remember when they really got hit hard they were doing triage they were saying this person's 80 years old we're just gonna let them die we don't have the re- resources to treat everyone this person's morbidly obese, we're gonna let them die. We don't have the resources to treat everyone. And a lot of the restrictions early on were to prevent that situation from happening in, the, in America, which it did. We did not get to that quite that point of triage. Now we know that some of those were arbitrary and kind of stupid, like you know, she, she talks about beaches being shut down. Beaches were one of the safest places you could have be. We didn't really know that at the time, but in retrospect, that was that was dumb. A lot of things were kind of arbitrary and capricious, but if you think having arbitrary, capricious overreactions to a public danger is unique to COVID, I would suggest that you're not terribly familiar with the history of American politics. We do this with everything. And that plugs into sort of what you were saying, that this exposed the way we react to issues, that we have a tendency to say, we must do something, this is something, let's do it. Oh, you don't want to do it. Then you don't want to do anything. And so I think we, we did need a more vigorous debate on these subjects. Schools, it wasn't obvious that schools could be kept open because, you know, I mean, I'm just getting over a cold my son brought home from school. But it does appear that we could reopen schools. And I remember I was teaching at Penn State in fall of 2020. And a lot of people were telling me this is going to be a disaster. We're going to have mass casualties. We're going to shut down the school in five weeks and so forth. And we didn't. We, had, we did have a lot of students get sick, um, some of them seriously, but between masking and eventually vaccinations and uh, central quarantine for students who, got, who were exposed and lots of testing, we were able to keep in-person schooling into, from the beginning of it till Thanksgiving break. And you know that was a, a learning lesson for us that yes, we can control this without sending everyone home. I also think people didn't anticipate what a disaster online learning was going to be you know we've been doing online learning for a while especially in colleges I mean you did online classes for your education and you, you had good things to say about them in some cases I don't think anyone anticipated just how bad it was going to be so later decisions are a lot more debatable Oster was uh, advocating for opening schools in the fall I think it could have made a good case then by spring when we had most of the teachers vaccinated you absolutely could have opened schools and so uh I think we should have a a really good uh, discussion about that. Uh, But I would point out to a lot of the people jumping on Oster and a lot of people criticizing the early decision making. If we start holding people accountable for things they said and did during COVID, it's not going to go the way you think. We're going to be talking about holding people accountable who said this was just the flu. We're going to be holding people accountable who, you know, were vaccine and continue to lie about the vaccine saying they're unsafe. There is a now a very good scientific uh, paper out showing that red areas of the country had much higher death rates than blue areas of the country, even when you correct for differences in age, because they were way less vaccinated. And that was a lot of vaccine skepticism that was pushed by a lot of the people jumping on Emily Oster and saying she's, she's wrong and she's crazy and she's stupid, that they pushed this vaccine skepticism, which killed conservatively tens of thousands of people that didn't need to die. So we're going to talk about that kind of accountability, or are we just talking about accountability for those early days? Now, I do think they have two legitimate points when they talk about the early days of of, uh, COVID and and the sort of um, government, you know, the, the sort of establishment response. One is the hypocrisy that you had, you know, people saying, you can't go to your grandmother's funeral. And then when John Lewis dies, they have a big funeral. Or people saying, you can't go out to eat, and then they're having dinner at the French Laundry. Absolutely call out hypocrisy. And those people who were hypocrites absolutely need to be held accountable. And I also think that we should talk about the certainty with with a lot of these things were said. When people, the scientists less than the media, but even some of the scientists were saying, if you go to a baseball game, you're killing grandma. You know, that was just, you know, that kind of certainty was not warranted by the data we had at the time. And this is a, a dilemma for science. A lot of times if you make it clear that we're not really sure this is our best, our, the best piece of knowledge we have, people think it, that you don't know what you're talking about. So that's a, a difficult line to thread. So I do think those are, are very legitimate criticisms. But plugging back into what you were saying on Tuesday, overall, I think COVID exposed a lot of the underlying problems we have in our politics and the way we discuss things. That you know you we you and i talked about gun control a few months ago we have one side that says if you're against gun control you want kids to die you know or if we have the other side that it says if you want gun control you want tyranny and you know there's this tendency to extreme your opponent's views so that they're easier to dismiss and so a lot of these hysteria a lot of the hysteria a lot of the certainty all of the ad hominem was not unique or new to covid These are dysfunctions in our political system, dysfunctions in the way we discuss the issues. And COVID, because it was one of the biggest, probably the biggest crisis we have had since World War II, amplified these dysfunctions.
3: Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. You know the one that got me where I turned, I, I just went, okay, this is remember when they banned the seeds up in Michigan? You could not buy seeds to plant. I
0: was actually just gonna mention that.
3: That's that's the one for me where I was like, okay. And remember, this is like this is one of the first banned things. Like, this is even before I think we shut schools down. They started doing this stuff. I'm like, okay, you're just, you're just this is masturbatory. This is there is no Rhyme reason. Or That's the one that really got me.
0: Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, there was in Michigan, they had grocery stores open, but they had non essential items roped off. And so, had a where they'd roped off the seed aisle, saying, you know, you can't stop for seeds. And their logic was, we only want people to go to stores if they absolutely have to. We don't want them shopping. But the amount of time it takes to get seeds from a store and the amount of risk that people are exposed to. Is minimal. This is the this was the big problem. And it is a and again a dysfunction in our political system of not looking at cost-benefit analysis. The benefit of roping off seed aisles was could not be measured with the web telescope. But no. the inconvenience it caused to people was was significant. And frankly, having people go outside and garden was one of the better things they could do.
3: It's insanity. Dr. Michael Siegel. The most appearances on this program ever. We're going to keep that going as long as we can because he's really, really sharp. And he's becoming a multimedia, multi-platform superstar with his YouTube channel. Also writes at Ordinary Time. Let folks know what you got going on, where they can follow you, all the different things you've got going on. Your latest that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, the throughput, that is up at Ordinary-Times.com as it is every Thursday. The YouTube channel, your Twitter. Also wrote a good little book, by the way. You got to go pick it up. Let everybody know what you got going on there, sir.
0: Uh, sure. I'm, and Ordinary Times is a good gateway to everything I do. All my videos I post there uh, so that people can find them. I'm I, Actually, now that I have a few subscribers, uh, you can just go to YouTube and Google my name, Michael Siegel Astronomy, and you'll find uh, my video channel. And uh, hopefully you'll find something there that you find interesting. Uh, join the ongoing 2000 comment debate over what the best spaceships in science fiction are. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the best way to find me is usually through ordinary times.
3: We're going to do that one where we talk about the crew and the uh, the military setup of those space captains, too. I'm, I can't wait to get in on that. That's going to be a fun one. Yeah, Dr. We, Michael Siegel. I'm
0: yeah. Great. He was my guest.
3: It, 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 I, I just always love We get so obsessed with it. You just proved it. They get so obsessed with the ships. You forget you got to have a crew to run that thing. Yep. Does the crew match the ship? Because then the ship doesn't work and doesn't make any sense. But we'll get yeah, into that.
0: Somewhere. Not all officers either. <laughs>
3: yeah. Hey, uh, don't get me like yeah. I'm a retired sergeant. Don't get me started on lieutenants. Like, all the lieutenants are super stars. I'm like, no, lieutenants are like baby giraffes. They can't even walk in a straight line. You got to like hold them up. It's ridiculous. Like that's. See, I'm giving you all the good channel stuff. I'm not going to give it to you for free. You're going to have to subscribe to his YouTube channel. Doctor Michael Siegel, love it, buddy. Thanks for the time, sir.
0: All right. Thank you for having me.
3: Yes, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're going to talk some more environment, some more climate policy, some more policy in general, because these things always wind up back at policy. Tyler DeVilius joining us on Herd Tell. He's from the state of Ohio, but we're not going to hold that against him for the purposes of this conversation. He is a Young Voices contributor. Well written, sharp guy. Looking forward to this. Tyler, thank you so much for the time today, sir.
5: Andrew, thanks for having me. Happy to uh, be calling in today from the great state of Ohio. Looking forward to our conversation.
3: Yeah, well, if it, was, if it was so great, you know, you wouldn't have to remind yourself how to spell it when you do, you know, football chants and such. <laughs> um, I'm teasing. Look, I, I worked in Ohio in the tri-state Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio area. I worked in Southport. So West Virginia, Ohio, it's just one of them things. I got lots of family in Youngstown, so it's all, all in oh, good, nice. clean fun. Let's start here, though, because we always do this with the policy stuff. Really, the policy is the secondary problem here because we never actually get to the policy because the rhetoric's a train wreck. So start with the rhetoric and you started in your piece here in Real Energy. Let's start there, because if you don't get through the rhetoric, you never get to the policy, you never get to a substantial argument, you never get to the point counter. Because, look, some of this stuff is in dispute. We need to have a back and forth on this stuff, Mm -hmm. but we never get there because of the rhetoric.
5: Absolutely. You know, a, a recent poll uh, from Pew Research Center found that Americans are, are relatively evenly divided. It's 49-47 when asked if President Biden and Democrats, if, if their policies are moving us in the right direction when it comes to, to climate solutions. And you hit on something there that uh, what we hear from the left far too often are, are rhetoric, not solutions. What they want to do is to use this issue, particularly in a time like now, as we're a couple of weeks out from midterm elections, to really divide the country, for there to be a right side and a wrong side. And when we do that, we're doing a, a disservice to, to our country and, and to the environment, uh, because all we're doing is making this a campaign issue and not actually working towards a solution. So the piece that I wrote for Real Clear Energy, what I wanted to do was to highlight these conservative clean energy champions that are working at the state and local level, and particularly at the gubernatorial level, to highlight, the actual solutions uh, the actual progress that's being being made without having to cowtail to to liberal policies um, you know we talk about the fact that whether or not you believe humans are contributing to climate change we recognize that the climate is changing but just because the climate's changing doesn't mean our principles have to change
3: yeah and let's follow that up for a second because this is a matter of principles to some folks but principles, are also shaped by lived experience. And I think there's something happening here um, that's a little bit, we're seeing some crossing of political lines and ideology lines. And some of it depends on like, you know, part of the, if you live out in the country, you may be more inclined to be an outdoors person. You may be more naturally inclined to traditional conservation efforts. You may be a hunter or fisherman and stewardship is a big deal to you. Um, where, this, where our radio partner originates out of Wilmington, that's a very progressive city that's surrounded by conservative areas, but environmentalism is an across-the-board issue because it's a coastal tourism, beach, wetland, intercoastal waterway area, so the environment's right in everybody's face. I'm from West Virginia. Everybody talks about it being a red state now. It was cobalt blue for 100 years, but because you know we, we all understood what coal mining and lumber and things like that done, we just see the environment and climate a little bit differently. I think that's part of this conversation we don't have enough of before we get to the policy is like, look, the city folks, and let's call it lead, although I'm sick of that term because it doesn't really mean anything. I'm like, sure, the city folks and the academics and the politicians, they talk over everybody's heads. some. You really need to tailor this to what part of the areas you're talking to because you can get some common ground if you tailor this conversation to where people are living at right now today, right?
5: Absolutely, and that's one of the the reasons that, you know, when it comes to energy policies, really, when it comes to most policies across the board, we don't need top-down federal government mandates. What we need are our local solutions. You hit the you nail on know, the head. I come from a Midwest farming family. Um, you know, we we recognize the the need to conserve our land, to be protectors of our land. Um, we don't have to to change the conversation too much, but we go and we talk about um, you know our friends down in Florida who are are still suffering from the aftermath of Hurricane Ian they see uh, you know, changes to, to ocean levels. They see changes to weather patterns. Um, and, and so when we have those different experiences, what can happen is we can take Governor DeSantis from Florida and take some of his climate resiliency policies that he's working on at the state level and marry those with the clean energy innovative solutions that Governor Holcomb from Indiana are working on. And all of a sudden, out of that, we have, uh, a, a solution-based platform that is, is again, driven in those experiences that you were talking about um, and not just, you know, scientific journals from uh, the academic elites, if you will.
3: Yeah. Tyler DeVille, DeVille the See, I told you I'd mess it up. We practice it and everything. <laughs> Tyler DeVille this, joining us. Um, let's talk about some of those top-down folks, So, Of course, President Biden is the president, so we're going to get more environmental stuff. We know what he said during the buildup. He, of course, he made John Kerry the climate czar, which, let's just be blunt, if you, if you could pick a worse caricature for that job that isn't going to reach out and, you know, gain hearts and minds, that, that was probably not the best pick for that. However, uh, government does have a role here. We understand what unfettered industry does. We understand that there needs to be environmental protections on the federal level. Where's the breakdown, though? Give me a ratio. Give me a line. I know it's going to be a little subjective, though where's good government stepping in like you know we don't want to just you know strip forest and you know i'm from the land of strip mine and it's an ugly scar on the ground you know nobody's disputing that there also needs to be a balance here and of course when it's the federal government you know everything's a nail and all they got's a hammer that kind of applies give us a good ratio though where good government starts and stops and where practical policies start and stops and where folks being able to live and companies being able to function start and stops
5: Sure. For me, as, as a conservative, the line for all of that is crossed that the moment government regulation, the moment government mandates starts prohibiting innovation and starts prohibiting the free market. I think a great example of that is uh, last year, my organization, the Conservative Energy Network, sponsored a, t- a tour of the critical mineral mine, uh, Rio Tinto, the Hop mine out in Salt Lake City. We had state legislators from around the country. Who are on this tour with us and as we're touring this mine we're seeing those critical minerals that are uh, so important not only to the energy industry but really to every industry to everything that we touch in our daily lives the computers that we're talking through to our cell phones uh, across the board and at the end of the tour one of the government affairs people from rio tinto tells the legislators that they're wanting to expand this mining project and they've been good stewards of the land in, in utah Um, and and they've been in the community for over a hundred years. But for them to expand that project, it is going to cost them twice as much and take twice as long as it would be for them to invest in a similar project in Australia or Canada. Now make all the jokes you want about Canada, but it's not a third world country. So if you're the CEO of Rio Tinto, a large multinational enterprise, Andrew, where are you going to invest your money? Is it going to be in the project that takes twice as long and twice as much to start to see a return on your investment or a place where you can do that in in half the time and with half the cost? And and for us, that's, I think, a perfect illustration of the lens that, to, all right, the the government should put reasonable regulations to ensure that we're not destroying the environment, to ensure the safety of everyone. But the moment that those become so onerous that they're preventing future development, Uh, that's made here in America, that's where it starts to become a real issue.
3: Tyler DeVille is joining us here. Here's exactly where our more progressive friends kind of paint themselves in the corner. And I think, frankly, the president's stuck in this box right now. They want the green energy revolution. They want battery powered, electric powered, everything, which I think we will get there someday. We are not there yet. And yet, on the other hand, you just touched on it, but we don't want to have this conversation. Those rare earth minerals have to be mined out of the ground. They are mostly controlled, especially things like cobalt and lithium, things like this, by untowards foreign powers that we don't really want to be doing business with, number one. But if we got to do business with them, we sure don't want to be beholden to them. We know the problem with fossil fuels. We know the entanglements with oil overseas when we don't produce enough for ourselves. There has to be a grown folk discussion in here. It's like, yes, we want green energy. Yes, we want a better environment. But you're still going to have to have some trade-offs to get that future. You're trading one problem for a new set of problems. And I don't think we do enough good enough job of being realistic with you're going to have some of the same problems. They're just going to have different names and different things. And then you paint yourself into a corner of this mythical, we're going to have this great thing. But, oh, God, the oil prices are going through the sky, which is what we have now. And everybody's in a bind all of a sudden. Why can't we just be honest and have that conversation? Because all the data is there. It's two Google searches to see where cobalt's mined at or lithium's mined at. It you know, Time magazine, rolling like big name, not conservative outlets have run exposés on what this mining and some of the human rights issues and some of the environmental issues with some of this type of mining overseas. Why in the world wouldn't we want to take control of it with our eyes toward our environmental regulation, with our strong EPA production? You'd think we'd want to be the world leaders in this, but we don't even want to discuss it.
5: Well, absolutely. And we talk about, you know, President Trump, when he was in office, worked to even up the trade imbalance that, that so many past American presidents had put us into. And, and critical minerals, when we think about that, we rely almost solely on the Chinese government, who right now, you know, we talk about geopolitical um, importance. Not exactly our friend, not ever our friend. Um, but when we look at, at things, when we make things here in America, it is inherently more clean and more efficient than what any other country in the world can do and an an example Andrew that I I like to to go back on is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline which cuts from Russia to Germany and I should say cut because it's in past tense now Um, obviously with everything going on between Russia and the Ukraine that pipeline was never turned on in fact Russia right now is sabotaging Nord Stream 1 and leaking oil into the Baltic Sea, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But Nord Stream 2, which received the endorsement of the Biden administration, that's the only reason it, it was finished, is nearly three times dirtier than the Keystone pipeline would have been here at home. So if we're talking about what's gonna be best for the environment, if we talk about what's going to be best in terms of reducing carbon, it's made in America. It's American natural gas. It's American mining of critical minerals. It's American nuclear. It's American solar. It's American hydro. We're in all of the above organization. America needs to be leading the energy world because when we do it, not only positions us more strongly on a geopolitical scale, but it it takes our reliance on foreign countries and flips that on its head then instead of us having to rely on Saudi Arabia for oil or on China for critical minerals or Colombia or any other country, now we can be the ones that are exporting not only energy, but the energy supply chain to the rest of the world.
3: Yeah, Tyler DeVan is joining us. You do something interesting here because I think this is one of those topics that really could get heterodox if people would just take it honestly and in good faith. It could cross through a lot of stuff. You highlight a couple of governors here. And, you know, people are going to recognize the names. But before you say the names, I can look at this just as so somebody followed. I'm like, OK, I've got a very conservative, you know, a governor that's being compared as kind of the next thing after Trump, if not a rival to Trump. I've got a governor who's very moderate as far as Republican governors go. I've got an Alaskan governor, which is always kind of a unique thing. They always have kind of a libertarian conservative bent, but they're actually more moderate than some of the lower 48s. This is a wide swath of Republican leadership here, and they all kind of found the way to say the same things when it comes to this new energy stuff. Do you see a change coming in that way that it's cutting across some of these lines? Because if I just came out and said, well, Ron DeSantis did this, everybody starts thinking the culture war stuff, but he kind of fallen in line with these other governors on the same thing. Should we be addressing it that way, do you think?
5: I do. And if you notice, uh, you know, the, the governors you mentioned, and I'll, I'll quickly run through the list Governor DeSantis in Florida working on on hardening infrastructure in the state of Florida uh, to combat some of the effects of, of a changing climate, to work on that climate resiliency aspect. Governor Holcomb in Indiana, the Indiana legislature, which is a supermajority um, Republican, they passed nearly a dozen clean energy bills. They touched on everything from electric vehicles to solar to nuclear. They're basically saying, and again, supermajority in Indiana, they're basically saying, hey, if this is where The economy is going. If it's where the free market is moving towards, we want to be a part of it. And then you have Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy, and um, you know Alaska has real problems with energy reliability, with energy sourcing in general. Um, But what they're wanting to do is to prioritize their energy reliability, to prioritize their energy independence, um, and they're going to lead through clean and renewable energy technologies in order to achieve that. And, and so I think what you see is each of these governors and all three of them are Republicans. Um, they kind of encapsulate something that even just hit the news just last week. And that was Governor Yunkin in Virginia. Of course, we all know Glenn Yunkin sort of beginning the, uh, the conservative revolution that we should hopefully be seeing at the ballot box here in a few weeks. Uh, but he released a state energy plan that prioritizes an all of the above approach. And for too long, we've let all of the above fall into that political rhetoric that we talked about at the top of the conversation here. But all of the above means just that. It means that we prioritize um, uh, forms of energy, including natural gas that are going to ensure reliability, that we look at existing technologies like wind and solar and hydro, but then we also innovate and we move that free market uh, to a a more efficient path. And, And if we're being honest, that's small modular nuclear. Um, And so I I think what we're seeing here is governors responding to the needs of the day, to the needs of their state. Um, And they're doing that in a way that that isn't going to rely on artificial mandates and subsidies and and deadlines, uh, but in a way that it's going to be able to be supported by the free market, not just in this moment, but for years to come.
3: Yeah, Tyler is joining us. When you look at something like Alaska, which is, of course, resource rich, we all know about, you know, the North Slope and the resources of Alaska, they're pushing for renewable energy. Places like West Virginia, traditional coal country, they're starting to really push renewable energy. A lot of battery powered um, companies moving into that area. When you see Youngstown, Ohio, the old GM plant is now an electric vehicle factory. Mm -hmm. I still have questions about the economic viability of this because a lot of that's still working off subsidies but you can't deny it's moving that way. Give me a time frame, though, for somebody that's a, that's healthily skeptical. I'm not just talking about the cranks. I'm talking about people like me who's just like, I think we'll get there, but I still think we're a ways away. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, what are we talking here, do you think?
5: I think we're looking in that, that t- 10 to 20 years, but the key here is that we don't give ourselves a hard and fast deadline. Um, that we allow the clean energy transition to be just that, a transition. You know, one of uh, my favorite kind of side-by-side pictures that I've seen is a, a picture of Times Square in 1901. And it was or early 1900s, I should say. And there are, are horse and buggies everywhere. And there's one car in Times Square. You fast forward, Times Square, same vantage point, 1920. There are cars everywhere. There's one or two horse and buggies across Times Square in New York City. And when you you think about that, I, I think that's kind of how we're getting here um, with energy. Will we be employing more and more renewable and clean energy in the future? I believe so. I think that battery technology has a way to go before it can capture all of those. Because sometimes, let's be honest, the wind doesn't sh- the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, and we need batteries to to capture the excess energy that's produced during those times. Uh, but I also think that is we look at, you know, when subsidies sunset, um, that's going to be a big indicator to are is this industry able to survive on its own? And and I do think that it will, there are a lot of studies out that, uh, show that it can be competitive without subsidies and, and let's let the free market dictate where we need to go in the future.
3: Yeah. Tyler DeVille is joining us. Uh, the piece is in real clear energy. We're going to link to, like we always say, read the whole piece, decide for yourself. He's got a lot of links in here too that you need to click through and read the background as well, Researched, Lots of stuff to go through. Tyler, let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Hertel and hear from you next time, my friend.
5: Thanks, Andrew. You can uh, follow me on my personal account at Tyler DeVilius. That's D-U-V-E-L-I-U-S. Um, and my, I have to plug my company's social media as well. It's at cons, C-O-N-S, energy Net. Um, on Twitter and look forward to, to being able to engage with you all on online.
3: Yeah, do that. We'll put all those links in there. Uh, it's a topic that's just going to be something we talk about over and over again. So we'll definitely have you back to talk about some more. Appreciate your time, Tyler. Thank you, sir.
5: Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate it.
3: Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Ah, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's back. He's been here before. We always enjoy having Charles Brand with us. How are you, sir? Welcome back to Herd Tell.
6: I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing this fine day?
3: Uh, Better than some of these folks in California that's dealing with yet another piece of regulatory uh, headache that we got to deal with here. You were writing about it. You wrote about it in uh, the OC Register. Big picture-wise... What is it about California that they're always tweaking with regulatory law when it comes to labor? This is what the third or fourth bill in as many years. It's kind of along these same lines. This is habit. I know it's a blue state. I know it's a progressive state in the power structures of the city, even though there's enclaves that are red. This sure seems to be like a song that we've sung before, my friend.
6: It absolutely is, and you hit the nail right on the head. California is a deep blue state with a deep blue legislator and a deep blue governor. Um, so, so long as both houses of the California legislator are on board and, and Gavin Newsom, who is, is oftentimes loath to disagree with the legislator, uh, you're going to have legislation, regardless of the fact of how far-reaching or radical it is relative to the other states in the union, and notwithstanding the fact that the regulatory consequences are oftentimes fairly grim for the people that the legislator claims uh, to uphold and cherish through legislation of this kind. So you're absolutely right. It's par for the course for California. um, And it's not all too common uh, given the, the kind of uh, unipolar uh, political landscape out in the golden state.
3: Okay. So this thing is called the fast recovery act fast being an acronym. That means it's all capitalized means those words mean something else. I, I know we fiddle with the names here, but break down for folks. Let's before we get into what it actually does. What is it intended to do? Like if it was in a perfect world in a vacuum, the people that propose this legislation, it magically waves a wand and solves what? So
6: it is a bill that establishes a wage council. It's a commission of sorts uh, with with ten members many if not all of whom are appointed by Governor Newsom and some of which have to come from uh, the restaurant industry, some of which have to come from the union um, uh, walk of life. So there are certain parameters as to who can serve on the commission. Um, But it is a commission established for the sole purpose of, uh, and I quote the legislation here directly, Uh, establishing sector-wide minimum standards on wages, working hours, and other working conditions, adequate to ensure and maintain the health, safety, and welfare of, and to supply the necessary cost of uh, proper living to fast food restaurant workers, and to ensure and affect intra-agency cooperation and prompt agency responses regarding issues affecting the health, safety, and employment of fast food restaurant workers. It is essentially a regulatory blank check, Um, for this 10-member commission to set in place uh, labor laws for a very specific industry, that being the fast food industry. Uh, Of course, the legislators' um, favorite friends uh, are immunized from the council's regulatory onslaught, and we'll get into that in a minute. But in essence, there is this commission. It will be regulating labor laws, but only with respect to fast food industry workers. And this commission is empowered with substantial discretion to to set the standards as it sees fit, though there are some parameters. For instance, um, as it's starting out, it can only go as high as $22 an hour with respect to the minimum wage. And I imagine there are other uh, broad parameters with respect to working conditions, but uh, the point uh, it, it is all the same. The discretion of this commission to regulate the working standards of fast food industry workers is substantial.
3: Okay, Charles Brandt joining us. It's not that this sector doesn't need regulation, because it does. It's not that it's a sector that isn't a high priority in our economy because the service sector industries like fast food workers are having both labor problems and shortages at the same time, even though unemployment's long. That's all valid. My concern here is I'm not necessarily anti-union. Uh, I come from West Virginia. If anybody ever needed a union, it was the coal miners. They needed a union. My problem with the modern version of the American union is it gets too cuddly with the U.S. government. Originally, unions were just as much against the government as they were for the workers and against the companies. Because my concern here is when you have the unions, which is what this commission is going to be stacked full of people, union and union adjacent. Let's all be adults here. And you have the government working hand in hand. If the workers got a problem with the union or the government, then where do they go?
6: That's a great question. Uh, I, I guess they can look inward <laughs> for themselves and ask for, for, for personal advice and counsel. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's been increasingly common, especially in democratic, uh, the circles of democratic politicians, for unions to have an outsized influence on policymaking. Um, On the national stage, an example is uh, one of the presidents of one of the biggest teachers unions. Randy Weingarten is currently out in Ukraine uh, doing God knows what. I'm not sure even in what capacity she's over there. PR. PR
3: is the word you're looking for.
6: Yes, Andrew, I was, I was, I guess, trying to be a bit kinder than you. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. Um, But, you know, it's, yes, the union influence, especially in democratic policy circles, is massive, and it should come as no surprise, uh, given the fact that public sector unions, especially, are uh, in the pocket of today's democratic party, and are a powerful and, and financially capable constituency of theirs, that, that, Uh, in the view of many, has has gotten them across the finish line in pivotal elections far and wide. Uh, So it is absolutely a problem. And there is this increasing trend toward governmental collusion with the private sector um, as a means of advancing goals that undercut the bottom line of the common man.
3: Charles Brandt joining us. This bill actually is the final form of a couple other things. You detail this in your piece as well. This came out of the fight for 15 stuff. This came out of originally this legislation was aimed uh, very narrowly directly at fast food workers. It's been expanded out a little bit. Talk about the path, because I think one thing we skip with re- with legislation and regulation like this, we get that line item at the end, like, oh, $22 minimum wage. That's what they're doing. The path that a piece of legislation like this takes actually tells you more about the intention and what it might do and where it might grow from because we understand something like a commission, they're not going to stop expanding their power. they're going to keep pushing the limits of that power. I think the course of how this came into being is very important to understand where this might be going in the long term. and you touch on that.
6: Well, as you mentioned previously, you know it was kind of a generic push for 15. Uh, and I imagine it wasn't just in California, but across many states in the union. Um, and now all of a sudden we've gone up to 22. But the legislator, I think, is being very clever here. Rather than simply pass into a law into law a, a $22 minimum wage and and face the voters uh, in November, um, they have kind of put a middleman in between the voter um, and the legislator, and that, of course, is this wage council. So. Um, I think the commission idea is relatively novel, um, and it's a strategic way for the legislator to punt the issue to a commission. A very wise man once said, uh, you, know, you form a commission when you want something to go and die there. Well, in this particular instance, um, I, I believe the legislator would like the commission to be successful in, in setting more onerous working conditions, uh, work, working standard conditions uh, for fast food industry workers and, and a higher minimum wage. But by handing the baton off to a commission, it's escaping immediate political accountability. The legislator could simply say, oh, well, the commission set the minimum wage to be X and they're chock full of experts uh, and industry leaders. Who are we to disagree with uh, such a bureaucratic masterpiece? So I, I, I think it's strategic. It's something we see at the federal level as well. Congress passes these really, really, vague laws with these insanely broad um, delegations of power to agencies. Those agencies then are granted discretion by the federal courts uh, in in interpreting their own statutes generally. Uh, And and so they're interpreting broad delegations of power very broadly and oftentimes without respect to the context uh, in which the law was originally enacted. Um, So With respect to your original question, I think what we're seeing here is a shift away from the legislator doing something directly and handing it off to commission as a means, I suspect, of escaping political accountability.
3: Yeah, Charles Brand joining us. There's two pieces of criticism for this. You already talked about the first one, that it's basically a backdoor minimum wage raise without going through the process to do so. The other is uh, the concern from some critics is that this is part of a larger effort to unionize the entire restaurant industry. Now, there's no secret that they would love to unionize the entire restaurant industry. There's some caveats to that. The the restaurant industry works heavily on part-time workers. It works on seasonal workers. It works on peak hour workers is a big thing in the service industry, especially fast food industry, because they want people that work peak hours. That means usually people that have certain home circumstances where they can do things like that. These are not things that traditionally go well with a union, but there's a push for a unionization. Talk about how that force and that metric and that dynamic can change something like the fast food industry, which has always been more entry level, has been more flexible hours, both to its detriment of the workers. And and I'm not saying they shouldn't do some reform on that because the way they jerk their hours away is not fair. Completely understand that but it does seem to be that they're trying to slam the same old square peg union thing into the very round hole, whether it's actually going to fit or not without any idea of whether it's going to fit or not.
6: Right. Um, I mean, several CEOs who, who fall under the unfortunate purview of this wage council have come out and said, Hey, uh, in the short term, we're going to have to pass this on to consumers. Uh, the, the increased prices, um, as a result of all these regulations and these new minimum wages, we will have to pass the prices on to consumers. That means less demand uh, for these fast food um, services or food rather, I should just say fast food, food. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately it's gonna affect the company's bottom line. It could uh, force them to hire fewer workers. Uh, it, it could um, compel them to invest in robotic capital instead of, uh, n- you know, actual human beings on the working line because they've made the, the financial calculation that it's simply cheaper to invest in robotic capital uh, as opposed to pay 22 up to $22 an hour um, for a worker that the market has not valued at $22 an hour. Um, so it could, Eliminate permanently jobs that um, many, you know, high schoolers or, or younger individuals work uh, as their first job, either out of high school or during high school. A lot of those jobs might not exist anymore with regulations like these, forcing companies to pay a wage that is just simply not profitable for them. Uh, so it, it, it ultimately it is likely to have effects that are detrimental to the very workers. Um, who the legislator claims um, it is here attempting to uphold.
3: Yeah. And the other part of this, Charles Brand joining us, everybody wants, it's it's easy to take a shot at a company like McDonald's, huge company, the standard bear and fast food for however many years. But the problem is McDonald's doesn't run all the restaurants. These are franchi- franchisee owners. So these are actually small business owners, even though it's a McDonald mega corporation brand. California has a history of this. We saw this with the truck driver regulation where they didn't do a carve-out for third-party lease owner-operators, and we see what happens at the ports where they basically made it illegal instead of doing, well, we needed to do a carve-out for that specific group. This feels like one of those things where maybe they're getting way too broad a brush instead of distinguishing, they don't distinguish between a Starbucks and a McDonald's and a Chipotle. They don't distinguish between fast, casual and more fine dining. They're not distinguishing between a mega-corporation where that argument, even though I still disagree with it, the argument of not passing the buck on would have more validity. And these small business owners that are franchisees, owners, this seems like a way too broad a brush to me. On a practical level, does it to you as well?
6: It's certainly a broad brush. But what I find especially interesting in regulations of this sort um, is where the legislator has immunized its friends uh, from from the onerous regulations. So there are two specific exceptions uh, in the FAST Recovery Act, which stands for the Fast Food Accountability and Standards Recovery Act, uh, also known as Assembly Bill 257. There's uh, what, I, what I've coined as the Panera exception. Um, so uh, one provision in this statute provides, and I quote, an establishment that on September 1st, 2022 operates a bakery that produces for sale on the establishment's premises, bread, and I'm skipping ahead a bit, shall not be considered a fast food restaurant so long as it continues to operate such a bakery. This exemption applies only where the establishment produces for sale bread as a standalone menu item and does not apply if the bread is available for sale solely as part of another menu item. Um, so that's the first exception, which is kind of mind boggling in a sense. I think the plain meaning of the term fast food encapsulates the likes of Panera, um, whose food is well fast and it's generally considered, though you can sit down and eat there much like at a McDonald's. I mean, it is, I mean, it's on all fours with your kind of prototypical fast food joint. Um. For some reason, the legislator has said, eh, no, Panera is fine. We don't need to regulate Panera. Uh, I honestly can't think of a single reason uh, why, as, you know, especially in light of the um, purpose, the, the the putative purpose set forth in the legislator, which um, in the preamble of the act recites, um, for years, the fast food sector has been rife with abuse, low pay, few benefits, and minimal job security. With California workers subject to high rates of employment violations, including wage theft, sexual harassment, discrimination, as well as heightened health and safety risks. Well, I, I really can't see how that purpose is any less applicable to Panera Bread uh, as to McDonald's or Chipotle. Um, so there's that. There's another arbitrary exception, which seems, uh, you know, what McDonald's CEO said is it's, it's really, you know, that these exceptions are the outcome of, of backdoor politicking. Um, And I I certainly agree with that assessment. But this particular exception um, provides, and I quote, fast food chains, chain, excuse me, means a set of restaurants consisting of 100 or more establishments nationally that share a common brand uh, or that are characterized by standardized options for decor, marketing, packaging, products, and services. So if you uh, uh, are working for a chain, That only has, you know, let's say, 100 um, restaurants nationally. You will not fall under uh, the the jurisdiction of this this commission. But God forbid you have 101, uh, in which case you are at the mercy of this ultra powerful regulatory bureaucracy. Um, So it, it it it's arbitrary exemptions like these that raise eyebrows so to speak and make me uh, as a prospective lawyer uh, uh, question the, 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 the purported reasons for this legislation or rather how sincere the legislator was in its conviction that these regulations were so necessary as to mandate the creation of an ultra powerful commission
3: on the plus side, pretty soon you're going to be able to go in the subway and just buy the bread because they're going to want to get all on board with that. So they they will find ways around here. That's why I brought up the loopholes in the truck driver legislation, because every time they do one of these bills, it seems like they leave some kind of loophole that either makes it way worse or that people can exploit to get around what they wanted to do. Uh, Charles Brandt, great information on this, as always. Always appreciate your insight on it. It just seems like once a year we do this with California. Like, every, like literally once a year we do one of these bills. So I don't think they're going to quit doing it. And I think there's going to be some legal changes on what you just said, though, about the fact that they're, they're doing some nationalizing regulation in the states and expect that to show up in the courts. Until uh, we get you back next time, my friend, hopefully not talking about California, but something else, uh, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Tell again.
6: Of course. So you can follow me at uh, uh, Charlie Brant 44 on Twitter, um, where I post my um, latest op-ed pieces um, and, and other, other political takes. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Andrew. And, and thank you so much for having me on.
3: Yeah, we always enjoy having you on my friend. He's a GW. Uh, so pray for him as he navigates the utter wiles of DC. Uh, Charles Brandt, good friend of the program. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.